Now I'm the world champ. Everybody wants to beat me. Someone's going to try to practice harder than me. There's no freaking way. I'm going to make myself unbeatable. How am I going to be able to win the world championships for a second time? My dad always told me, he goes, you know what? You can win once. Could be lucky. You win twice, you earned it. These girls pull up on the left lane and go, hey, come to this party. So we're like, yeah, yeah, go. And my friend Guy is driving, you know, all excited, just doesn't look, makes it up. Oh, we get into this big accident. My brother gets to his back, chokes him. Guy stands up now and he's getting choked. All of a sudden they go, boom, they land on my brother. And he goes, he's out. So my brother, let's go. We're like, okay, get out of here, let's go. Sign me up for jujitsu. That was it. That, I was so, I've never witnessed something like that in my life. No non-Brazilian was ever a world champ in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. So I thought, man, I can win the world championships. It's like any other sport. Everyone's going to make a mistake, and you got to capitalize on the mistake. And if you have the right game strategy, you should be able to win. The finals was probably one of my most exciting wins ever because I dislocated my shoulder in that match, and I popped it back in on the railing. I was like, hey, Egan, second place as a world champion in absolute is good enough already, enough. And I'm like, that's not enough. Time's not up. I didn't lose yet. I remember thinking to myself one night after I lost a match that in order for my dad to have done all of these things for me, no matter if I win or lose, he's still the same to me. doesn't matter. He must love me, even if he never says it. It's always a hard thing for me to tell someone, oh, I love them because that's like a serious word to me. I know my older daughters as they were growing up, I never really said that to them. Now I do. I want to break that cycle. I don't want it to be like that. They need to hear you say, I love you. Greater Good Radio, Connect, Learn, Heal, and Grow is brought to you by Brain Gain Hawaii, a boutique executive recruiting, career development, and coaching firm. Learn more at BrainGainHI.com. Welcome to Greater Good Radio. Today's guest is Egan Inoy, world champion racquetball player, world champion Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and also in spearfishing. But my good friend, foil partner out there, not really partner because he's way better than me, but <laughs> We go out there, and he told me I was a 4 out of 10 skill level, and I'm trying hard to get higher than that. It's definitely moving up, that's for sure. Well, like five. Uh, you have, I don't know. Last time I saw you, you looked pretty dang good in your well, turns. You know, I've been wanting to interview you for a long time. For those who don't know of you, because you're pretty famous in general, how would you describe yourself if someone says, oh, you know, who are you? What do you do? I guess I describe myself as a person that fitness and being in shape is super important. Mm -hmm. Not because of looks, but more because of just, I want to be a centurion, hopefully, and not one that's in a wheelchair and just, you know, being able to do activities and, and have a really good quality of life. And, you know, for my kids, super important to me that I stay in shape, show them what it is to be in shape and be able to do things with them, like play basketball, my son, baseball, surf, foil board, all of that. So I think that I would describe myself as that and... I don't know. I think I'm moving out of it a little bit. But when there's things where people say can't be done, kind of gets the wheels turning a little bit. So that's okay. the kind of person I am. You know, what's interesting is when we were foiling the other day and then you're on the new kind of barracuda, that skinny board, yeah. right? It's kind of tippy. And you said something along the lines of like, if I don't struggle, it's not interesting to me. Yeah. Right. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, for sure. Whenever I talk about struggle, a lot of people like, oh, struggle, Ugh, bad thing. But for me, it's like I've changed that thought in my head. And whenever I'm struggling, I know it means that I'm going to get better. So anytime I'm struggling in whatever I'm trying to do, it's a positive thing. Because maybe in, say, stand-up paddleboard, downwinding, right now I'm struggling, but I know the payoff's going to be good. 
right? And I also know that the bigger the struggle is, the better the reward. So if you're not really going through struggles in life, you know, and you're happy, that's fine. But for me, I just like to keep getting better, keep learning. When was the first time you remembered thinking like that? And was there a time where you didn't think that way? Well, I think most people in general, anytime it comes to a struggle or they start struggling, goes, eh, I don't know if I really want to do this. But I think through racquetball, I really learned that the struggle was real for me in racquetball. I mean, it wasn't an easy thing. And a lot of people say, oh, he's world champ. But on my way to being a world champ was super hard. I mean, you know, I had like one year that I decided to quit school. It was hard because my parents are educators and they're like, they don't want me to quit school. And my dream for my grandparents or their dream for me was to be a doctor or a dentist, which was along the lines of what I would have done if I went to school and also play baseball at University of Hawaii, which I had a pre-scholarship to do that. And my first year in college at UH, I decided I don't want to play baseball anymore and I was going to go for it and racquetball. So I quit school and then I moved to California. And then that whole first year, I lost every single match. And back then it was three games, three out of five to 11 points. So that's five. If you go Tyberg, you got five games. I went three games. I lost three games every single match. And I traveled over over 100,000 miles in United alone to get to all the different, you know, racquetball tournaments. And man, I lost every single one. But at the end of that year, I was like, I'm done. I'll go back to school because I gave it all I got. And, you know, that's one of the things I believe is that if you go for it and you fail, you can live with it. But if you don't go for it and then you start thinking to yourself, like, I wonder if, you know, and 10 years, 15 years, 20 years later, you know, you still see people saying, or I still hear people saying, oh, if I did that, I would have been here or I would have been there and I would have, should have, could have, if, and I never wanted to live like that. Anyway, going back to that story, I had quit racquetball. I came home after the last racquetball tournament and I broke all my rackets on the curb, (laughs) threw it in a rubbish can, and then literally... Maybe, I want to say like six hours after that, I got a phone call from the U.S. team coach. And he goes, hey, Egan, you want to come uh, be an alternate for the U.S. team in the world championships? And I was like, oh, my gosh, that was my dream. And then I thought, oh, alternate. How are you going to be a world champ being an alternate? And my dad looks at me. He goes, what the heck's wrong with you? You're such a punk. I go, why am I a punk? He goes, you, that's all you wanted to do to get to the world championships. And you get the chance now and you don't want to go. And the team coach goes, you know what? And, you know, back then it didn't have internet and, you know, no cell phone. So it was on a regular phone. And so he said, you know what? The U.S. Olympic Committee got a ticket for you under your name at the Honolulu Airport. It's a 10 o'clock flight, red eye to Florida. So hopefully you get on it. And I was like, all right, I'll let you know, coach. And then my dad talks to me and tells me all that kind of stuff. And I'm going, oh, my gosh, dad. And nothing against cheerleaders, but I was like, I'm not a cheerleader. I'm not going to go up there to cheer my teammates on. I want to win the world championship. So if I'm an alternate, there's no chance. And I was second alternate. Anyway, I ended up jumping on the plane. I get there, and now I'm first alternate because one guy got hurt. By the next morning when competition started, I was playing. I woke up in the morning, and the coach goes, you ready, Egan? I'm like, what? Ready? Yeah. For what? Well, what rackets did you have? So what happened was because I had all broken rackets, the company I was playing with, Ectalon at the time, they sent me all brand new rackets. I had like 10 brand new rackets waiting at the place when I got there. So I had all these new rackets to play with too. And I was playing. And, you know, that year I ended up winning the world championships. That was my first world title that I ever won. And You went all losses for one year, mm-hmm. got that break, and won the world championship? Yep. I know, pretty crazy, you know, because in my head when I was there, I was like, oh, my gosh, I don't even know how to win. 
And sometimes I tell people, you got to learn how to win. You got to practice winning. And what I did all year was I practiced losing, basically, because that's all I did. And so I was really, you know, my confidence was super low. And I was like, man, I'm here. I'm going to play today. And, man, I don't even know what it feels like to win at this point. And then one of my coaches came up to me. And he sat down, and I didn't really know him that good. I just knew him from the racquetball scene. And he goes, you know what, Egan? He goes, as one of your coaches, I just got to tell you one thing. And I go, what is that? He goes, to be an alternate or to be in the U.S. team means that you have potential to win the whole tournament. You understand what that means? And I looked at him, and I was like, and he was a professor. He was a doctor, so he had this, you know, he was a kind of crazy guy. But I was like, yeah, I think I know what that means. And he goes, well, let me just tell you. He goes, Every single person on this team is a champion and can win the world championships. We picked you out of everybody else, even if you lost every single game, because you can win it. And I think you can. And I was like, oh, if you think I can, I guess I can. And man, I never played better racquetball my whole career. Like I played so good. It was unbelievable. And, you know, that kind of just tells you that I could have gave up and I could have quit. And since that time, I learned so many different things about myself and about life that so many times as humans, we quit a little bit too soon, Mm -hmm. you know, and I almost did it too. Wait, so was it the external validation that got you to kind of believe in yourself and then you said, I got it or, or you kind of had it? I think it was the coach that told me that he believed in me and the U.S. team believed in me. The United States believed in you. Hawaii believes in you. And I started going, oh, crap, I cannot let anyone down. And that's where I was like, huh. And then I went back to thinking about how many hours I practiced. And, I, you know, talking to the other players, I'm like, none of these guys practice or train as hard as I do. It's like, so if anyone deserves to win anything or can win, should be me. And then when I started thinking like that, you know, and, and that takes me to the point where I realized at that point, too, is my confidence comes from working hard. If I can do more reps than you can, I'm going to be better than you. And so everything that I've done since then, that's how I think. So with that piece where your confidence comes from doing more reps, did that come from when you're young or when did that come from? Yeah, when I was young, I've done certain things that I was really good at. Like what's the youngest you can remember? So I think the youngest, I was playing baseball, I was 10 years old. And my dad set up this rubber tire in the backyard and he would draw an X at different heights. And he goes, you got to keep hitting it till all the, the chalk is off. And I would do it every day. And it was kind of a game for me at first. And then my hitting started getting unbelievable. And then I started being known to be a hitter that was super hard to strike me out. And I wasn't a long ball hitter, but I could get on base every single time, right? And so I realized, like, wow, no one, none of the other kids did it. And when they'd come to my house, I'd say, hey, try this. And they would do it, and they'd, you know, 10, 15 swings. Oh, we're getting blisters on my hand. Oh, and they would stop. And I was like, wow, I do this every single day, and none of these guys do. Then I started noticing that, hey, I'm a lot better than most of the kids and especially the kids that don't do anything for practice. And then I think that was kind of ingrained in me in a sense. No one pointed it out to me, though. And then when that happened, I could call back on all those little memories. When you won the world championship, going from like losing everything, what was that like? Well, the first thing is like, I can't believe it, right? I, I think I was in shock for the whole night, like that whole night. And then I think when I was flying home, back home, I started thinking to myself, like, okay, this is unbelievable. How, how did that happen? Right? But the confidence I also gained from it was just unbelievable because that next season and my pro, my, the rest of my racquetball pro career just took off ever since that time. 
did you have a letdown after it? Because you, you hit that goal and then there's like, okay, I achieved this huge goal for me. No, I didn't have a letdown. Actually, I was even more pumped. And I remember something my dad told me. My dad told me that, and he told me this when I was doing karate when I was young. I was really good at karate when I was four years old, right? And I was competing at six-year-old because they didn't have my division. And I would beat almost every single person. And my dad goes, you know what? Someday you're going to run into a guy who's been practicing harder than you. and He's going to beat you. And that flipped me out from when I was young. And so, you know, that's one of the things that I thought about. Now I'm the world champ. Everybody wants to beat me. Someone's going to try to practice harder than me. There's no freaking way. And so there was really no letdown because the next thing I knew is I got to climb to the next level. So I was already thinking, like, how am I going to get myself to the next level? How am I going to make myself unbeatable? How am I going to be able to win the world championships for a second time? Because my dad always told me, he goes, you know what? You can win once could be lucky you win twice you earned it and so i was like oh i gotta win another one right and racquetball world championships is every two years so that was 86 then 88 i got kicked off the team right before the world championships and it wasn't like something i did wrong it was they didn't want me to win again because there was no way anyone was going to beat me because i was like after winning that first world title I was the only person to be a number one pro in the world and the number one amateur in the world. So there's like this little loophole that amateurs can play where you don't collect any of your prize money in the pro tour and you put it back to the amateur association and they hold an account for you and you can use that money for expenses. And that's the only way you can take that money. And so I played that loophole. So I, I remained number one in both. I think I'm the only person that's ever done that. And it was, you know, all to do with that thinking, that mindset where there's somebody out there might be practicing harder than me. But, you know, in 88, I got kicked off the team. I wrote about it in my book. There's how, a, how did that actually happen? Then? Like they just decided, well, you out? We got into this, had this argument at the Nationals. My brother was actually playing and we got into this big argument. You and your brother got argument. No, my brother's arguing with some guys in the gallery. And he was winning. So I was like, yeah, so just be quiet. You just win this match. But they're heckling him. Yeah, they're heckling him big time. And if anyone knows my brother, he's got a hot head, right? So I was downstairs like like by the door so he couldn't run out and run up and, and do something. And so I go, Ensign, just calm down. I'm going to take care of it. All you got to do is two more points and you win the match. And then that's going to be the best revenge you can get on those guys. So I go upstairs and I tap this one guy and I go, excuse me. I said, can you just, and he turns around and he whacks me. And then boom, automatic response. I hit him back and then it was a whole crazy melee. And then. Oh, he's false crack you kind. Yeah, he like hit me. I moved, hit me in the shoulder, and so I punched him in the face. Oh. Or actually, I punched him in the throat and then punched about 20 other guys because they all started jumping on me. <laughs> and, I was, and I was in the semifinals at the Nationals at that point. And so they were going to kick my brother out because of what happened. And I said, you kick my brother out, I'm out. And they go, if you're out, you're off the team. I go, all right, I'm off the team. Then I walked. And sure enough, they kicked me off the team. And so... You know, I played pro only that whole year, and it takes a year to get amateur status back. So it took me a year again before 1990, get my amateur status back, qualified for the team again, and then won. So Oh, so they let you back on then? They let me back on. I had to just a suspension of a year. What was going through your mind in that? Did you learn something, like a really valuable lesson in getting kicked off and coming back on? I should have learned a lesson that maybe I shouldn't have messed like that, but I keep going. I kept going over it, going, man. There, I had no other choice. I mean, he could have hit me, and I could have not hit him back. But that doesn't mean the rest of the guys weren't going to jump me anyway, because they didn't want us winning either way. So, 
I just thought, you know what? The best revenge is I'm just going to get back on the team again, and then I'll win the world championships again. And that's all I had in my mind. So all those years building to that, all I did was I practiced a little bit harder. I worked a little bit smarter. I learned a little bit more and made the team and then won the worlds again. That would be nuts if your brother went up and was beefing with you too. No, I had so much guys. It was crazy. So here's some things that I noticed. One is like kind of an incredible drive, right? Part of the underlying piece of that incredible drive is I don't like somebody taking my spot. I don't want to lose. I don't want to feel that feeling. Yeah. And then another central piece is your dad. Can we talk about your dad a little bit yeah. then? Because he sounds pretty central in, yeah, yeah. in all of this. What's the earliest kind of memory that is of your dad that kind of shaped you to today? You know, it's funny because when you talk about my dad, it's like the modern day parenting is so opposite from the way my dad parented me. And I know like in today's society, they'd say that was wrong. And yeah, maybe it was, but let me give you a couple of examples. So like my dad, he would never praise me. For example, like baseball, I was a pitcher. I would throw a no hitter, but I'd strike out once at bat out of three at bats. I could get two hits, strike out once. All he could talk about was I struck out and my grandfather was the same way. And then we'd have dinners at my house every time after my baseball game that I'd have to hear it. I'm like, what about every other, all the other plans would tell me. Good pitching again. That was unreal. All those two good hits you had. Nobody mentioned the strikeout. They would. And that's all they would talk about. Mm-hmm. Play basketball. I'd score 32 points in one game as a kid, which is, you know, like you watch. I watch the kids nowadays, and, and the games end at 20. And I would score 32. And all they did was miss two or three free throws. And that's all they would talk about is those free throws. And I know in this day and age, that would be the wrong way to coach your kids, right? That's kind of how I grew up. And I never knew for years, like, how much my dad, like, he actually believed in me. He just showed it a different way. And I think that really helped me out because I never did pat myself on the back and I never be like, oh, yeah. You know, like, I hear people go, oh, that was awesome. You did awesome. And whenever I hear that, I'm like, going, that's not awesome, right? Because awesome means perfect. You can't get any better because it's awesome. And everyone can get better, right? So that's one of the things that, drove me and I think the way my dad raised me and you know I got spankings as a kid nowadays if you got spankings like that man you'd be reported to CPS but I really believe that if I didn't get that I might have been a super bad guy today or I wouldn't achieved what I did for sure guarantee because I think the discipline that I learned like no matter how much I wanted to do something I wouldn't do it because of the consequence right and if I was going to do something wrong, I knew what the consequence was. And I was still going to do it. Mm-hmm. And I know that if I got caught, I'm going to get it. But I was willing to take that chance. And I feel like that mindset and that thought really helped me as you know, I started growing up. I started competing more because I would think, okay, what is the downfall to this? Oh, the, all I can do is lose. Frick, I'm in. Mm-hmm. I'm competing. You know, and a lot of people, they don't want to think for basketball. They don't want to shoot a basket because they, they don't want to miss. But how are you going to make a basket if you don't shoot it, right? And it's a, kind of the same exact thing. And everything that I do is like, okay, so what's the worst can happen? And if I think like I can deal with it and I'm willing to deal with it, I'm going to do it. Is it also that the worst thing that could happen is your dad going to shame you? Kind? I think even with all that going on, I think that to disappoint them was actually what bothered me. Yeah. And like I scored 32 points. 
what? You guys, don't, you're not proud of me? Like, because I struck out once or I missed two free throws, really? So instead of taking negative, like, I can't please them, I, I, I can't do anything right, I would have been like, frick, I can make those two free throws. Easy. I, I, I didn't need to strike. I mean, I could have put the bat on the ball somehow. I don't know. But those things I thought was always possible. Was there a point where it wasn't possible and then it became possible? I think that everything that they criticized me of was always possible. I always thought, yeah, they're right. It was possible. So you never had it where they're criticizing you and you're like, I cannot do this. I just cannot do this. While I was practicing, a lot of times I would think like, man, I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to do it like this. Yeah. And I've actually had that. Actually, in racquetball was more than anything. Like baseball and all of that, you're a team sport. It doesn't necessarily only fall on you. But when you play racquetball, it's all you, right? Mm -hmm. And so there were times where I would set up my drills Sounded super good as I'm setting it up. Like, oh, yeah, this is going to be a good drill. But as I'm trying to do this drill, I'm like, going, oh, my gosh, I don't know if I can freaking do this. And so a good example would be like I would try to hit the ball down the line, which means it's about that far from the sidewall, and I have to hit it that high from the ground, right, 10 in a row. If like one you put a hits spot ball, on top of the wall yeah. or something? Oh. And if the ball hits the wall or goes behind me, and I would stand like this close to the wall, like a racket length. So if the ball hits the wall or goes behind me, mm-hmm. start from start again. You start hitting yourself with the racket or something. No, no I just oh. would start again, like start from one again. Mm-hmm. And so like some days I would hit 10 in a row like that. Then other days it would be like I get to nine, miss a shot. I get to eight, miss a shot. And it would take literally an hour to get it done. And those are the days I'd be like, man, I don't know if it's possible, right? But that's where I learned that. It is. You just got to settle down. You got to change your mindset. You got to get it right, and then you can do it. But so many times in life, it's like you start spiraling a little bit, and you think about that spiral, and it gets worse. Instead of just stop and go, man, you suck right now, but that's not you. Let's do this mm-hmm. and just change that whole thing around. You have that incredible drive, right? I cannot lose. I got to do it. And work. <laughs> you kill yourself until you get yeah. it done. But has there ever been time where that kind of got in the way? Or it's caused problems. <laughs> yeah, it does. You know? It's the being stubborn. That's what it is, right? And yeah, exactly. So all my life, all the sports I played, I've always known to be overtrained. So I feel like I've never gone into a competition fully fresh. I've always been a little achy here, a little achy there, never completely, you know, feeling good. But I also feel too that anytime that someone goes into a competition feeling good, they don't perform as good. A lot of times these guys win with like broken finger or sprained something or no one, no professional athletes ever good, right? So I think overtraining though, definitely today, I'm paying the price for overtraining when I was young. In You mean like having to do the knee surgeries and stuff yeah, like that? Yeah, Shoulder surgeries. Knee surgeries, shoulder surgeries, neck surgery, hand, toe, like all those little... <laughs> <laughs> Four knee surgeries. But you know when you get that like Anglan bash through this wall no matter what how does that affect relationships i think it it affects a lot of your relationships in the sense that i don't have a big group of friends i don't have guys that i hang out with because all of that has to disappear because when you're trying to hit a goal in my mind if the cobblestones taking me across the river wasn't taking me across the river and it's going to take me to the left to the left to the left which would be like example like going out with your friends and partying that's not going to take me to my goal that's gone, right? Hang out with my friends. That's gone. Like all of those kind of things is gone. I'm trying to make the straightest line to the top as I can. And anything that's going to take me 
to the left or to the right, it's gone, right? So I think, in a sense, that that has affected my like my friendships or like my friends, and you know I got a lot of friends, but not real close friends. There's very few close friends, right? And there's very few people that I would hang out with, like just. I mean, there's guys I foil board with. Yeah. Yeah, and we're friends. It's all good. But we don't hang out. I don't hang out with anyone. Like, I don't come to your house and have dinners and, and we go out to dinner. I don't have that with anyone. So I think in that sense, that's the sacrifice I had to make. Do you miss that? I don't think so. <laughs> I, I mean, as far as I am, I'm 58 now. I don't regret any of it. How much of it is, like, discipline and, like, forcing yourself through it? And how much of it is just kind of that's your disposition? That, okay, I, this is just how I am. It's not how I am because there's a fight every single day within myself. So, for example, I wake up every single morning, 4 o'clock in the morning. Like, there's mornings I wake up and I'm like, oh, my gosh, I, I want to go hit the snooze. But I have this one thing, like, I always have these things where I call non-negotiables. And when one of my non-negotiables, you never hit the snooze. If the alarm has to ring and wake me up, I better wake up. But usually I wake up five minutes before my alarm. I'm good. But... That's one thing, right, that I feel like, oh, my gosh. Like a fireman. Yeah, right? And then straight from there, you know, I got a couple of chores that I do, leave the house. I get to the gym by, like, 420. I do my breathing, which is not an easy thing to do, too. So many times I just want to skip it because it's that Wim Hof breathing. So mm -hmm. you're doing, you know, multiple inhales, and then you hold your breath, and that that's not comfortable. You're just doing three sets of that. Yeah, so I do three sets of that every single morning. And man, so many times I'm with like, the okay, push ups and two. stuff. Yeah, and I do okay. the push up set too. And then he has this stretching routine that I kind of do also. That part's easy. It's the breathing part that they clock how long you hold your breath for. So, in my mind, I guess because I'm somewhat competitive, I'm always trying to beat myself, right? And so, some days I like, I've actually had a four minute breath hold, but I also have a minute 20 seconds like this morning. And it can, it can get to your head in a sense sometimes because, like, oh my gosh, frick. How am I going to hold four minutes again? I'd rather not do it and try. You know, that goes through my head. I'm like, no, just try. Just go for it. You know, and then when I hit a minute 30 and I got to press the button to take the deep breath in, I'm like, freaking minute 23 seconds. What the heck? Right? And it's like, today's not the day. I'm not going to do the rest of the breathing. That goes through my head. But I make myself do it. And I think that part, the discipline kicks in. But it's not easy. It's not like it's an automatic thing for me. So you know when it's like that part kicks in. It's like so one one part says okay I don't want to do it. The other one says I'm gonna kick in. Yeah. Right. Whose voice is that? So you know what I imagine? I imagine a good wolf and a bad wolf. Okay. And oh, like I, the Native American. Yeah. Fable. Like the, yeah. Like those. Well, like a wolf wolf. You know. And they always say right is a good wolf and the bad wolf. Which one's gonna win? The Whichever one that you feed, feed right? the most. Right. So every time I get that doubt, like ah, I don't feel like doing it. I feel like I'm giving into. The bad wolf or the weak wolf. And I always want the strong wolf to be talking to me. So that's what makes me. But that wolf, that's the image or so on. If you thought about somebody in your life that the voice, the tone, does it remind you of somebody? No. All it is is an image. Like I think of like a wolf or sometimes I think of a lion, like, you know, the king of the jungle. And that's, that's what I want to feed because that's what I want inside of me. When people look at you like you're 58, but you look, I mean, fantastic. I'd say like at any age whatsoever, your level of fitness is high. You compete at a high level period physically and business-wise. But with all that, sometimes it's a little bit hard to identify because it's like he just makes it through these things. He can just bust his way through where... I know for myself personally, a lot of times I'm down and it's like, oh, I don't like do this and I don't do it, yeah. right? So have there ever been times 
where you were like human, you know what I mean? Where you were down. Yeah. And then I'm assuming you probably moved it to the other side. Yeah. So can you take us through that? So when I'm down, it's more, if I can justify in my head, like sometimes, I don't know, I haven't been sick in like, I don't know, 20 years. I haven't caught a cold or been sick. You never got COVID or anything? I got COVID once, but I didn't even know I had it. I just knew I had COVID because the 18 people that we were skiing with in the same, and we we're staying in the same house, they all had COVID. Oh. And so that you got to have COVID. I'm like, I don't have COVID. I feel fine. And then your eyes look watery. All right, I'll test. And I tested it. Yeah, I was positive. But it didn't stop anything that I do, right? But, yeah, so going to that, the reason I brought that up is because there are times where I still remember when I was younger, like when I was in high school, I got sick. And I remember that someone telling me that that's the only way you're going to get to rest. So if you have to rest, you're forced to rest. So don't push yourself to the point where you have to rest. So I feel like there are times where I don't feel like doing certain things. And I think about it, okay, is it because I'm supposed to rest? Because I need the rest? Or am I just being a weakling? And then that's how I justify it. Like if my muscles are super, super sore and I feel like I need to rest, I'll rest. But then that's a fight too because I'm making myself rest, right? Now, as far as not feeling like resting, there are times where I just wake up and I'm like, oh, man, I'm flat. You know, and then I'll check my pulse. And if my pulse is 10 beats over regular resting, I'll take a rest. Hmm. But never that where I'm just going to lie down. And, eh, I know I got to do this, but I ain't doing it. Maybe chores, I'll do that. What's harder for you then to take it easy or go full blast? Taking it easy is probably the harder part for me. Like I got to really know that I'm taking it easy because it's best for me. Because if it's not best for me, then I'm not going to take it easy. When we talk about self-care, what would be your version of self-care? So self-care to me is making sure that I'm in bed by 8.30. I'm up at 4 o'clock in the morning. I try to get in the sun or the water for grounding every single day or at least five days a week. Nutrition-wise, I'm not on a real strict diet. I eat basically whatever I want. I think I've been doing it for so long that I know what I need and, you know, Protein levels, I make sure I eat enough protein. I always get over 150 grams of protein every single day. Super hard to do. I make sure I'm hydrated all the time. I think that's it. I mean, I make sure I lift weights twice a week. I do high-intensity workouts four times a week. And I do my stretching every single day, breathing and stretching. And to me, that's what it is. So you're talking primarily like the physical aspect of a lot of these which i mean yeah. yes mental physical emotional yeah. they tie in yeah but do you do anything that's specifically mental or specifically emotional i think my breathing in the morning that's my mental and that's my you know spiritual that's my time and then when i stretch and i do my morning routine that's my mental time because that's where i prepare for you know whatever i'm going to do on ig that's where my ideas come up mental too is like when i get out in the ocean it's like sometimes i get right back in shore that's why I, I, a lot of my videos are done right by my truck when i get in because i get all these thoughts that come up and if i don't do it right now i forget speaking of truck i saw you got a new truck right <laughs> yeah, yeah. so people may or may not notice but your tacoma truck got stolen like twice <laughs> yeah i mean can we talk about that or what like yeah because yeah. i saw it on the line and then somehow you found it again <laughs> yeah. like how does that work yeah i don't know it's it's really weird and, and i laugh at it right now but if you saw me, when I saw my truck was missing, it was a whole different me, right? I mean, I wasn't crazy. So I, anyway, I posted it, right? And 
you know, they find it in Kali the Wait, first so time. So what happened? You just go outside and your truck's not there? Or yeah, what? I woke up in the morning at four. I walked downstairs. I'm like, hey, my truck's not in my parking stall. Oh, I must have parked it on the road. So I go to the road. I'm like, it ain't there either. So I go back in the house. I wake up my wife and I go, did you move my truck? She goes, no, why? I said, it's not there. She goes, are you sure? I'm like, am I sure? I freaking checked all over the place. Yeah. But I, I need to borrow your car because I got to get down to the gym. So anyway, that's how that went. And two days later, I got a call and the car's in Kalihi. So they find it. So perfect. Get it back. Most of the stuff's gone. But it wasn't stripped. It wasn't stripped yet. Yet. What do you think is the reason that they, you know, it wasn't stripped and so on? You think they knew, oh, this is Egan's truck. We better not mess with this because we can get it. Nah, I don't think so because half of the things in the truck was stolen. And then the other half was in bags ready to be moved. Because my cars are usually a mess inside. And I have everything I need all the time. Mm-hmm. So I think they couldn't take everything out in one kit. And then they're trying to hide. And so I think that's why, you know, it, it was found right away. And so that's why I got it back. I think that's the only reason I got it back. And then it got stolen again. <laughs> and then so I hid it at my dad's house for a while, right? I kept it behind this iron gate. And then I got it detailed, fixed up. I'm going to sell it. I decided a couple months later, I'm going to sell it. So it's all fixed up. I'll put it online, so I'm going to take it back to my house, right? So I can show people if they want to see the truck. Eight hours later, the truck's gone. I bring it back to my house, put it in a garage. I put it next to a Tesla that has a camera. Camera doesn't pick up a thing. Truck's gone the next day. Like, unbelievable. And did you find it the second time? And then they found it the second time again. Except instead of Kalihi, it was in Kahalu, and I think this time it was going to disappear for good because it had no license plate on it. They had none of my stickers that were on it before. It was all gone too. And that was the first thing that happened with that truck. And I got a call from a HPD officer that said, I think we found your truck, but we can't tell because there's no license plate. All your stickers are gone, but we can't go on that property because we need to get a warrant to get on the property to see if whose truck that is. So I guess they left one guy there watching the truck. And then finally, they were able to get that warrant, I guess. And they got on property and said, yep, VIN number matches Egan's truck. So they arrest anybody over there? No, they didn't arrest anyone there. So no what, the guys, the they were there and said, oh, I don't know how the truck I got guess, here? Yes, I don't know how that works, but yeah. Super you think it was crazy. the same guys then or what? Yeah, they think it was the same guy because the reason they got the truck in the first place was I had a lockbox with a metal key. Supposedly, it doesn't have one of the chips in it. And they use it to open the door, but it doesn't start the truck. But it started the truck because they found that key on the ground right outside the truck the second time. So they said it must have been the same guy. How does it start the car? So there's this thing called a flipper that they were talking about. And basically what it does is it'll bypass the system. So all you need is a key that can turn it. And as far as the chip goes that's in the key, that flipper will bypass that chip part. Because it had memorized the sound or the signal or something. That thing can even open up doors. So if someone has this flipper, they can turn it on as you're beeping your car and it'll record that whole sound that it transmits. And then when you walk away, they go to your car, they press that button and your door. So they, they've been scoping it, kind. Yeah, I think they've been scoping it. And, you know, that machine's around. I don't know. They say you can order it off the internet. What? Yeah. So you move from karate to baseball to racquetball. Is that how it goes? Yeah. And in between that, it was like, you know, from karate, I went to Wing Chun, I went to Taekwondo, I went to Hapkido, I went to Kendo, 
And then I went to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. You still go to the same classes too? Or you get to a certain level and then you move or something? Yeah, I would go until I felt like I wasn't really learning anymore. And then I would quit. And your brother would go to? No, my brother did nothing until Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Oh, really? Yeah, he was a non-martial arts guy. All the way till Jiu-Jitsu. Was he scrappy and stuff? Or oh, he, like, oh, okay. he was super scrappy. Never did the training, but... Yeah. Scrap. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he was that just scrap guy. Mm-hmm. Scrap anybody, anytime, any place. And it's just you and your brother? Yeah, just us two. Oh, okay. And then, so how did you end up going from racquetball to the jujitsu then? So, yeah, jujitsu was right after racquetball. And during my racquetball career, I started doing jujitsu at the end. So during racquetball, I was trying all the different martial arts with the intent to strengthen my mind. And that's all I was using martial arts for, right? Not the physical part. It was all mental. And... My brother, you know, found this jujitsu thing. Wait, right? can I ask him something on that? So yeah. all mental meaning like because the instructor is going to kind of like mentally challenge you? It's mentally challenging in the sense that to learn a certain technique or learn it the way the instructor wants you to do it, a lot of it's not natural, right? So to do it over and over and over and over was a mental thing, right? Okay. And it really helped me develop and really understand that consistency is what makes you better. Mm. Like to go every single day is going to make you better. Right, And then when you do it, you don't just go through the motions. Because I know a lot of guys who started at the same time that I did, and they just come and they just go through. They just do it, right? They don't think. They don't have any goals. They don't have anything. They just come to the class and just do it. Whereas at each class that I'd get to, I had a goal. Like, what, what am I trying to achieve in this class? Mm-hmm. Right? And that's how I trained. And I learned that that's how you get better quick at anything. Did all of your past martial arts experience help? Yeah, and it, it all helped, you know, from baseball to karate to... And karate actually taught me a lot because I was not only doing the kumite, but I was also doing the, the katas. And the katas is like you got to memorize all of these things and it's got to be done a certain specific way. And everything, every to the little detail of how you step, how you breathe, how you ki, all of that, right? And it's got to be done exactly like that. And the only way to do it exactly how they want it is to do it over and over and over and over again. And so I think from that young age, I realized the importance of consistency and sticking with it. Because there's going to be bad days and there's going to be good days. Some days I just couldn't do anything right. Some days I couldn't even remember what's next. right? And the other days, on. you know, Which actually took me to even more like realizing like, man, a lot of this is mental. Like how do you be on all the time? Is that possible? It's got to be. I mean, that's... The, the greatest in the world, they're on most of the time. You know, maybe you can't be on 100% of the time, but those days that you're off, you have a technique to try to bring yourself back on again, right? And I think that was the whole challenge. And, and those things, that's what I love, challenge. And what's the technique to bring you back on? The technique was when I was playing racquetball, I used to have these flashcards, and they were all words or phrases that drop some kind of emotion in my head, something that makes me fiery or like... There are some times in my racquetball career, the ending part of the racquetball career, where I'd be playing and I didn't really care if I won or not. It was like, some people say it's like kind of like you're burnt out, sort of. Kind of that type of feeling. Or bored. Yeah, or bored because I'm winning and, and like this guy's rubbish because he's a qualifier and he's, you know, and I'm just messing around and I'm not playing that good. And then all of a sudden he starts playing good because, hey, I scored points on Egan. I can beat Egan. And once your opponent starts thinking they can possibly beat you, they can, mm-hmm. right? And so that was my whole goal in all my competitions. Whether you beat me or not, 
I want you to walk away thinking like, oh, frick, I got lucky to beat Egan. I don't know if I can beat him again. Or I never want to play Egan again because that was the most brutal match I ever played. And that was always my goal in sports. Like that's how I wanted my opponents to feel. Right? So with that said, that's the kind of thinking that I had um, all the time. What did it say on the cards? So on the cards, it would say stuff like rise to the challenge. So if I was feeling down, like I was saying, then I needed words like you got to rise to the challenge. And then I would think about water and I'd put water. And water meaning water will rise to wherever it has to rise. My grandmother used to say in Japanese, gambate means, you know, go for it, never give up. I would have that on there and I would think about never giving up. Because sometimes when you start losing or you're not actually losing, you're winning and the person starts catching up. There's a tendency to just be like, ah, frick it, give them this game. I'll come back the next game. But when you do that, they have momentum going into the next game, not you. So you got to try to kill that as soon as you can, right? You got to like, what did they say? You got to kill the monster. Don't let the person become a monster. Or they would say with the snake, right? The faster you chop the snake's head off, the less chance you're going to get bit. So those kind of things is what I would write on there to get myself fired up. Never surrender. I don't know. I had a whole list of them. And I would just flip through that. I'd call a timeout, flip through that thing until I could feel that emotion that I wanted to win again. So you're doing what Tony Robbins calls priming. Yeah, I don't know. Is that yeah, what Tony Robbins It's like priming. You're priming yourself. You're getting your mind, your body, and everything. You're moving your physical body into a winning kind of posture and everything. Yeah. And then so you can feel that way. Exactly. Yeah. That's, the, that's exactly what it is. What'd you do with those cards? I don't know. I, they're gone. I, I always go back looking for that. I always look for all my notes because I used to write down all my workouts before I got to do it. And after the workout, I would write what I did and how I did. And I, I don't know where all of those... So it's kind of obsessive kind. Oh, yeah. Super obsessive. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm that. Like losing is not an uh, option. Kind. Yeah, it's not an option. What's worse than losing? I don't know. For me, that was the worst thing I could possibly do is lose. How about now? Still a little bit. I'm getting better. Like, you know, like <laughs> I'm getting better. I'll give you a good example. So we're playing horse with my son. And we had this two other guys that came jumping on and wanted to play with us. So I'm right before the other kid's dad. So I'm like, freaking, I got to get that guy out. Right. <laughs> and after him was my son. So I got him out. He was out first out of the game. <laughs> And then my you son's got him off by a horse, or you choke him out. No, no, oh. no. I, I would have choked him out if I couldn't beat him in horse, but I was doing all right that, that day in horse. So anyway, I get him out, and my son's next. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to get him out, but I still want to win. But I'm like, ah, this is not good. So anyway, I wouldn't make the shots for my son, so he could make the shot to knock the other kid out. So he does. He knocks the other kid out, and then he knocks me out. Right <laughs> in the end, because I'm. You know, trying to let them. And momentum is such a huge thing because even in a game of horse like that, because I would miss for my son, when it was time to play him, I wanted to give him more of a rub. I couldn't make a shot to save my life. Everything he made, I couldn't make, right? But the point is that I'm still competitive, but I'm able to lose sometimes when it means something. And I know we're going to go home and he's going to be like, I beat that, I beat that, I beat that. And I was like, you know what, that's just fine. I was okay with it. Usually I'm not. You sure you was okay with it? I don't know about that. <laughs> I see your arms twitching and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm okay. Yeah, I'm okay. <laughs> yeah. That's an interesting one because that 
internal like polarization goes almost against your whole oh, yeah. being, oh, yeah. which is like I'm not going to just give you free points for no reason. I'm not yeah. going to give you free praise for any reason. I'm not <laughs> yeah. going to give you praise, period, because not <laughs> not going to hurt you, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. And why are you going to get it if I never get it? Yeah. And so you know, what I mean, how are you reconciling that? So the part where you're saying where I didn't get it, so you're not going to get it. That's where I decided to just break that chain. Like when. When I had my son, so my older daughters, they got the wrath. The poor, I mean, so bad. I, I apologized to them till today. And I know they got issues because I was like that, right? Just too hard. And they always say girls soften you, which it kind of did. I had four girls before my son. So my son's really lucky because by the time I got to him, I'm like, I ain't going to do what my family did to me. If this kid doesn't want to play baseball, he don't need to play baseball. If he don't want to play basketball, he doesn't need to play basketball. If he wants to play and he just wants to be regular, that's fine with me too. Right? But he's not but like kind that. of. Yeah. Kind of. <laughs> but, you know, it's like it, still to today, it takes discipline, a lot of discipline for me to, you know, like lose to him like that and not tell him like, what, you didn't think I freaking let you in? Like I'll never tell him that. But I know as time goes on, he's like, I think dad let me win, which is fine with me. But that when he won that day, he couldn't control himself. He just was like, yeah, it's like on the court in front of everybody. And so I kind of told him, hey, Jet, when you win, you don't have to be like that. <laughs> yeah, but dad, but it was such a, like, such a good emotion that it was okay for him to do it at that moment. But maybe not from now on, because how do you think that kid felt? And how about his dad? You got to think about that too, right? And how about I've you? always kind of been like that. And then how about for you, right? Because it's like you get him and now he's talking, oh, you brought up. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I gave him a freebie. Yeah. You don't get it now. <laughs> yeah. Play like, again. For me, it was like, it's weird because I thought he was so cute that I was like, ah, me losing to him was worth it. You know, it's really weird because that's not me. Like, mm-hmm. you know, that's not me. But it was for real me. I was like, oh, frick, I'm so stoked that he won, you know. So did you find that after the next thing you play, you and whoop him? No, actually, the next day he wanted to go back again and play. And we played one game of horse, which he beat me again. But he beat me legit this time. And then we played rat after that. And I beat him in rat, right? And, and so the joke was like, you beat me in horse, but you're the rat, right? I had to rub it in in that sense. But, you know, I, I explained to him like, he goes, Dad, but you always harass me and you brag about winning to me. I said, yeah, because you know why? One day I'm not going to be able to beat you. And he kind of looked at me like, really? I go, yeah, one day I'm not going to beat you. So I'm going to enjoy it right now. <laughs> <laughs> but I wouldn't do that to outside people. And the reason for that is I never, like in all my sporting career, I never try to aggravate my opponents. Because if they want to stay sleeping... I'll beat them while they keep sleeping. Well, then they work harder, right? Yeah, I don't want them to work harder. Yeah, but you see so many athletes, they'll call out their opponents, they look at them, they grunt at them, they give them the mean eye. I'm like, I never wanted to do that to any of my opponents. That's what I was watching, that football documentary or whatever it was on Netflix, and then it had Mahomes. Mahomes. And Mahomes said that he's never going to be mean to any of the defensive linemen. He always like tells them, good job, good job, (laughs) and so on, because he doesn't want them like putting the extra hit on him. Mm -hmm. So he's always trying to be nice to them, yep. praise them, and doesn't want to make them mad. Yeah. Which is like, especially as a quarterback, that's pretty smart. Yeah, no, that's true, right? And I think that's how I thought all my life, especially in MMA. Like, you know, you do the face-off and you see the guys do the face-off and they're like shoving each other or they're mad-mugging or they're putting their forehead or whatever it is. I would never do that. 
what do you do then? You know, if they do that to me, I just smile and I back off and I back off and I back off. And before the fight, when they, you know you touch hands, I always tell them, "Good luck, fight good." Even if I didn't want them to fight good, I would just tell them that, you know. And instead of be like "f you," you know, I just couldn't. I've never been that kind of athlete. Was that just tactical? For me, it's tactical because I, I realized at a certain point, like that, when I smile a lot, people have a hard time. And I had a lot of people thrive on hating the opponent. It can be baseball. It can be a pitcher. He hates all the batters, and that's why he's going to strike them out. You know? And I've never wanted to be that. I, I never wanted to do it. And I've tried it in racquetball because I've had coaches go, Egan, you got to step in that court. And when someone else steps in that court, you got to think to yourself, how dare he step in my house? I didn't ask him to come into my house. And their beating is going to be, you're going to beat him so bad in the court and tell him that's right. When you're not welcome in my house, this is what happens. And I tried with that mentality, couldn't do it. I tried, you know, hitting guys with the ball when I was doing junk to scare them. <laughs> <laughs> what, do you, then, what do you mean? They're in front of you and you hit them in the oh, back? Oh, yeah. Well, like, they didn't on even, purpose. They, yeah, not that they're in front of me. They could be way on the side of me and I'll hit the ball completely backwards? the wrong way just to hit them with the You mean the wall. the wall is like in front and they're behind you and you hit them backwards? Oh, no, them? no. If they're behind me, then they're good. Oh. But a lot of times the racquetball, they won't be behind you because they're, they're trying to cover the front court, right? You try to hit him in the head, kind? Oh, I hit him anywhere. I hit uh-huh. him. Well, actually, I would try to hit him in the arm that they have, they hold their racket. <laughs> so, and then <laughs> there was once in Michigan. I was in Flint, Michigan, and this guy was killing me. I lost the first two games. I was gonna lose the third game out, and I'm like, I can't lose this game. I gotta freaking win. Like, I don't know what the heck. And I remember all the dirty players that used to play against me would hit me with the ball, and they would smile and, and look at me like, yeah, right. But I would always play even better because now you piss me off. Right? And now I, I'm going to do whatever it takes to win. And I was at the opposite point where I'm going to lose. I got to do whatever it takes to win. And because I've seen it happen where guys get hit by the ball and you get hit hard enough, can't make it back. Anyway, I hit this guy in the arm, won the rest of the match, won the whole tournament. But I would have lost to this guy first round if I didn't hit him with the ball. So funny, yeah. Well, that reminds me of like you can run faster or break everyone's legs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. maybe kind of mix it a little bit. Was yeah. like, I mean, you would think racquetball too is not really a contact sport, but kind of is. Oh yeah, yeah? oh yeah. It, no, it's totally a contact sport because you you can run into each other. And I learned that, and that's where I, I realized that after learning, getting your technique down and getting yourself real athletic, that's where being strong comes into place. What do you mean? Because you go there and you bump them, or so. What? This is what happened to me. I was my First qualifying as a pro, I played the number two player in the world. Because when you qualify, you're going to run into number one, two, or three, or four in your first round. And that's why it's super hard to break into the pros because you're going to have to knock off one of the top four guys when you qualify. I was in Northern California. I get this guy, Dave Peck. He was number one in the world. Actually, not number two. And I beat him the first two games. And I'm winning 10-1 in the third game, which means at one more point, I win the match. So he hits this ball half speed. That's going to cross him right where I'm going to hit the ball. And I got to get there. And he stands there on purpose in the way. And he waits for me to run around them. And as I run around them, he turns around. And mind that I was about 170 pounds. And he's about 215 pounds. And he played for, I don't know, Texas. And like kind of a big guy. Yeah, he was an ex-football player. And all that. Yeah, turned around just ran me. Like glasses, smashed my glasses with crooked. Like one of the arm things on my broke. And I remember sitting up, like, not realizing, like, like I think I might have knocked out for a second because when I was standing back up, I was kind of disoriented. And I figured I lost the rest of the match. Mm. 
which that after that match, I thought to myself, "You mean you lost the whole match? I lost the whole match. I couldn't refocus. I was just still startled. I was still like not really sure what was going on." And so when people say that racquetball is not a contact sport, it can be in that sense too. And then once I started getting stronger, I started using that same tactic. Like I'll hit a ball, you stand there, I'll bump you. But I didn't do it as bad as he did. Like I didn't turn around and freaking line back. Freaking. So could you have just blasted him? I could have ran into him, but I was trying to run around him, right? So later on, would you just run through somebody then? Oh, what? yeah. Then once I started getting stronger, I was like, you want to play that game? I can play that game too. Mm-hmm. And that's where the strength and the explosive movements came even more in hand because two years after that, I played that guy again, ran into him. He did the same tactic. And instead of me getting run into, I ran into him. And it was a whole different story. And I reminded him right after that happened. I go, remember when I did that one two years ago? When I was 10 pounds lighter? And he goes, I do remember that. I go, yeah, payback. <laughs> were you guys friends or no? Oh, yeah, we were friends. We were oh. totally friends. Uh-huh. We actually liked each other. And, you know, I beat him that second time. Never lost him again. Never lost him. Again. You ever seen that one on the uh, Dream Team Olympic game where Kobe runs right through Paul Gasol like yep. that? And yep. he's like, I'm just going to let him know I'm here and ran right through him. So yep. what, like that kind? That's the same idea. Mm-hmm. And now you never want to take that chance of standing in front of Kobe again. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's the same thing. And after I hit that guy in the arm, if they were beating me, they would give me certain shots, like most of all the shots, because they didn't want me to hit them with the ball. Mm-hmm. So like the little things like that go a long way, you know, and, and I never played like that after that because I felt so bad about it. I mean, even at, oh, you won that Davidson, Michigan or Flint, Michigan tournament. Yeah. But I remember how I won it. And that really matters to me, mm-hmm. like how I win also. So when you decided to do jujitsu, what made you decide to do jujitsu instead of going back into another martial art or something? So what, what happened was jujitsu, my brother came home one day. Two months of jujitsu. And he goes, Ian, you got to see this. This is the most unbelievable thing. And I'd be like, jujitsu there. He goes, no, no. If I get you to the ground, I can submit you. I go, what do you mean submit me? I can make you quit. I'm like, you can't make me quit. You can't get me to the ground either because I was a stand-up guy mostly, right? All my arts are all standing up. And I go, you can't get me to the ground. So he cleared my parents' parlor or the living room. We moved everything on the side. And then I go, okay, let's try and then he would take me down, and then he would make me tap. Like, he would choke me, and I'd be like, tap. Yeah, but I didn't even try to hit you. He goes, you cannot hit me. I, go, I don't want to hit you. I'm going to hurt you if I hit you. And that's what you hear a lot of in, in MMA, right? Try it again. And by the time the last one was, I'm going to freaking knock him out already because now i got rug burns on my knees, my elbow, on my face, and I'm, like, pissed off, and I'm sweating, and everything's burning. So, yeah, I'm going to freaking knock your head off this time. Still took me down. And I was like, man, I got to start learning this stuff. This is the like, incredible martial art. And then you had to learn it because incredible martial art is because my little brother is getting me, bro. No ways. It, actually, that little brother thing disappeared because he's actually bigger than me. Mm. He always has been. But younger brother-wise, it could be that. But it was more like I was like, this is incredible. I, I was more intrigued. Like I couldn't believe that that could happen to me. He's never done martial arts his whole life. I've been doing martial arts my whole life, and he can do that to me. That makes me think that all the martial arts I learned is no good. Did nothing for me as far as self-defense. And two months after that, we were in Seattle, and they had the Nationals, and we were playing in the racquetball Nationals. And after the tournament was over, we were like, oh, let's go, you know, we'll go do something. So we were driving down 
And I still remember it's called Battery Street, right underneath the Space Needle. And we're in the center lane. And then these girls pull up on the left lane and go, hey, come to this party. So we're like, yeah, yeah, go. And my friend Guy is driving. So Guy, go, go, follow him. So they turn left, but we're in the center lane. This left lane could go straight or left. So he, you know, all excited, just doesn't look, makes it down, boom, we get into this big accident. This big, big guy comes out, like just yoked, and like his eyes are just huge, and he's jumping up and down like a gorilla. Like that's how big he was. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. Like, so we get out of the car. He immediately goes to the guy, shoves him backwards on the, so he's laying on his back on the hood of the car. So an Asian guy, your friend? Yeah, my friend's like, no, a white guy. Oh. And then the guy going nuts is a black guy. Mm -hmm. So it's a really bad thing. (laughs) And my brother and I get out and I look at the guy. I'm like, man, I'm a black belt in Taekwondo, Hapkido, Karate. And I'm thinking, I don't know how I'm going to hurt this guy. Like I'm thinking to myself, like, where am I going to hit this guy to stop this guy? He's so freaking massive. And then my brother comes walking on a car, super calm. And he looks at me and goes, I got this. (laughs) You got this. Oh, frick. Let me see this, right? Tries to get in the way. The guy's like shoving my brother. So I like I run over there and I don't want to see a fight. So I'm like, okay, guys, I'm gonna call the police. Just just calm down. So I turn around. I start jog. I start jogging. I'm like not even 15 feet. All of a sudden, I hear my brother scream. I turn around and I see this guy's feet in the air and I hear a thump on the ground. And my brother's sitting on the guy. So I come running back. I'm like, oh my gosh, how did that happen? And then my brother freaking hits him like. At least 10 times in the face. And you can hear the guy's head hitting the concrete. Nothing. The guy reaches up, grabs my brother's shirt, and starts pulling it, like ripping. I'm like, oh, my God. This is like a movie. This is a bad, bad dream. So I start running around looking like, how am I going to kick this guy in the head, right? And my brother's like protecting the guy. No, 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 no. I got this. I got this. I'm like, how you freaking got this? The guy just ripped their shirt off. Guy turns around. My brother gets to his back, chokes him. Guy stands up now. And he's getting choked and he's spinning around in a circle. And all of a sudden they go, boom, they land on my brother. And we're like, is he out? Is he out? And I go, I get really close and I look. I'm like, I don't know. What do you mean he's out? He goes, is he out? Like, is he passed out? Is he knocked out? I go, I don't know, but he's going like this. So I go like that to my brother. And he goes, he's out. Yeah. He goes, so my brother lets go. And the guy's like dead weight on my brother. And my brother can't get out from under him. I'm trying to shove the guy off. So he goes, help me. So I grab the guy's arm. I start pulling him. And my friend Guy comes. He was one leg, one arm, pulling him off my brother. That's how big this guy was. We finally get him off. We run back to the car. Let's get out of here. So we start taking off. And we're like, wait, wait, wait. I got to make sure he didn't die. Stop. Like, what do you mean? I don't care if he dies. Let's just get the hell out of here because he, he ain't dead. He's going to get up and we're going to really be in for it. Guy gets to his knees. We see him shake his head. We see him hold his head. And we're like, okay, get out of here. Let's go. Sign me up for jujitsu. That was it. That, I was sold. I've never witnessed something like that in my life. What, your brother was already taking classes? Yeah, he just two months watching? only. Oh, Only two months. And he was that good. And I was going, man, imagine the black belt guys, how good they are. Because my brother said the black belt guys would just toy with him. He couldn't do a thing to any of them. Or the black belt women. Yeah, or even a black yeah. belt lady. Oh, yeah, for yeah. sure. Even probably one blue or purple belt woman would oh, yeah. total you. Oh, yeah. I've had, yeah. you know, I've trained women and, and watched them just take men, rip them apart. And yeah. the guys are like so ashamed they don't come back. <laughs> that story is kind of nuts. What's your most memorable story that you either had experienced or heard of somebody saying, okay, oh, this is why I do jujitsu? A lot of the times I think guys just, I mean, it's like another martial art. Guys don't realize what they're actually learning and how good what they're learning is until they get into something, right? And I know 
for me, I was training this one girl. One night, her ex-boyfriend had the key, came into her place and, like, you know, went, jumped in bed with her. Freaking, she swept them, got into them, arm locked them, broke the guy's arm. Guy didn't even run away. She called the police on the guy. The guy sat there because his arm was broke. He couldn't move. And, you know, like that story sold a lot of people, you know, in jiu-jitsu. And then, you know, some of the girls that I trained in jiu-jitsu when a guy would come in. And it was always the same guys, right? The bodybuilder-looking guys with big muscles that walk in. Oh, I want to do jiu-jitsu. I want to try out jiu-jitsu. Yeah. Go train with her. And she was a blue belt at the time, right? And murder him. Murder him. And all the guys who are like, you know, that bodybuilder type guys, those guys don't come back. Because, you know, they're more into show. Yeah, they're that type of person where they're into show rather than into function. And so they showed really bad. Mm-hmm. So they ain't coming back. Because I remember in the beginning when you guys were the first spot in Manoa. Yeah. And then Kumu was there, right? Yeah. And then I was asking him how you got into this. Because Kumu's a big brother. Yeah. Like, what is he, like <laughs> yeah, 250 yeah, or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a like big he, guy. I took that one less. He was lying on me because he tried to... I couldn't do anything. <laughs> I'm like, dude, he could do anything to me right now. And I would just have to call him <laughs> uncle or something because I can't even move. But then he said that he went into... I think it was your studio, right? Yeah. And then... And as he said at the time, they were like getting in beefs all over the place yeah. and knocking people out and this and that. So they thought it was all big time. Mm-hmm. And then he came in and he heard, oh, somebody's talking about this. And he said the guy who was reading one book, like a school book or something, <laughs> like 140 pounds, glasses. He's like, oh, can I help you? He goes, yeah, I want to learn about this. He goes, okay, could, okay, I'll show you on the mat. He's like, whatever. <laughs> and he said the guy like kept choking him out over and over yeah, again. Yeah. He's like, put all his money. He's like, I'm in. Yep. Yeah, I'm in. Totally. So you started taking with your brother. Mm-hmm. And no, then, my brother started taking. And, and then, then he started teaching me. Oh, so you never like go to the class. You just no. have your brother teach you. Yeah. How come? I just didn't have the time. Oh. And then I was playing racquetball, so I couldn't get injured. And I knew my brother wouldn't hurt me. So your brother was teaching you, but he's brand new too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> and yeah, he had yeah. done nothing before. So no. that's kind of like. Yeah. It was uh, weird. Yeah. Yeah. And was he a good teacher? Yeah, super good. Like to the point where. When I finally went to a class, I was probably better than everyone else already because that's how good he taught me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So did you go to the same class that he was taking then? Yep. He actually brought me for kicks because he wanted me to submit everybody and act like I didn't know nothing. And so I did a good job acting like, what? How do you that? What? What? And then when it was rolling time, I'd submit almost every single person. And then they're like, what the heck? You get, they don't get mad. Most of them were okay with it because they're all pretty new. The only one that really got mad was Helsing Gracie. Oh, the teacher. The teacher. Because he actually gave me what they call a triangle because he didn't think I knew the triangle. And You mean he was teaching it to you or he put you in it? No, he let me put him in it. Oh. And it's a submission. And, you know, playing racquetball, my legs are freaking ridiculously strong. And so it's a leg choke, right? And so he's stuck in this triangle. And I'm like, oh, I got, I got this black belt. I got the house and Gracie. Yeah. And I kept doing it. I kept holding it. And he was trying to escape, but he was going nowhere. Like, he was stuck. And when someone doesn't really know a triangle, you can get out of it. Like, I could teach someone a triangle, and I can get out of it every single time for a long time until that person gets really good at it. But I was pretty dang good at it because I was practicing at home with my brother. Anyway, he never got out of it. And my brother's looking at me going, let him go, let him go. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I got him. What do you mean? I'll make him tap. And then my brother's like, he ain't going to tap because yeah. that's just how it is, right? Well, anyway, I put him to sleep. And oh, you did? That was the hate after that. The guy Wait, never left. Wait, that was your first 
class. First time he ever met him. Oh, so you're starting off with a bang. Yeah, I started off good. So, so people say, oh, you used to train with Helsing Gracie. I never trained with Helsing Gracie because he never liked me after that. I wonder why. Yeah, I don't know. So today, I don't know. <laughs> so, but I don't blame those, him. I don't blame him. Universal <laughs> mysteries. I don't. I don't know. I don't know why. <laughs> why? Why would he not like me? Yeah, yeah. That's why. Oh, that's nuts. So, because yeah. how old was he at the time? Probably like forties. Yeah, he was probably in his forties because that was a long time. And ago. then you were what twenties? Yeah, I was like twenty six or twenty. So like peak physical condition. Oh, yeah, I mean, I was in world championship caliber for racquetball at the time. And he still let you join the class? No, I never did get to join the class. It was a drop-in fee, yeah. Because I was traveling so much that I was not I was never going to join a school or anything anyway. Oh, so you never actually joined one? Do, they call it dojo? Dojos, or yeah, yeah. yeah. You yeah. never joined one? I never joined one. So what I did was his brother, Hicks and Gracie, who's known as the best, was oh, in yeah. Los Angeles. And because I traveled all the time, I'd always make a stop in Los Angeles and I would train with him. You would train with Hickson himself? Hickson himself. I would take private lessons because I knew I couldn't get hurt. How was that? That guy was unbelievable. Like, there was nothing I could do to do anything. He would let me put him in a choke and he'd escape. Like, that's how unreal this guy was. Were you like, at that point, like, oh, this is nuts? Oh, yeah. I was so impressed. I was like, man, in my mind, that's how I want it to be. I got to get there because that's unreal. Did Hickson know that Helson never liked you? Yeah, he did. To the point where he'd be like, okay. I'm going to show you this. My brother will know this. When you go back home, go to Helson's house and tell him that I said you guys got to train. And so I did. And then I get kicked out of his house again because I would catch him in whatever Hickson showed me. <laughs> oh, so he would still let you come over. He would still let me come over because Hickson would call That's him, That's the I Kalani guess. house. Like, yeah, yeah, the Kalani. Kalani. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, the one the long, yeah, exactly. Yeah. The one the garage. Yeah. I got kicked out of the garage twice. And then after the second time, I was never invited back. Oh, so you actually wasn't training under him? No, I never was. It was oh. all Hickson. It was all Hickson, and I would train with Hickson. I'd do one private. Every time I was in L.A., I would do two or three of his group classes. Then I'd come home and practice with my friends until the next trip. Every <laughs> pra- two weeks, I was Practice gone. with your friends? Like, so I have a good friend, and I don't want to out him, but he's high up in police. So he used to practice on me. It was like, oh, we're going to practice. But that really meant he's going to practice on me. So like sixth grade, we outside Latin class. He's practicing his fireman's carry on me. I come in all busted up. I'm an unwilling like victim. <laughs> but you know, that's that's what he would call practicing. Is that yeah. the kind of practicing you're talking kind about? Kind of like that. But what I would yeah. do is I would teach the guys the defense to it. <laughs> and then I would do it to them over and over until they got really good at defending it. Then I knew it was time for me to go back learn something new. So when they defend this, where do I go next? Mm. And then that's how I develop my game. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. That's like giving them just enough so they'll still play. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, 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 yeah. And then you get okay. No, 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 no. It's a little bit more, yeah. <laughs> or you know what you do? Then I bring Some in some good friends. New, and then yeah. I have my friends wrestle with this new person and be like, hey, I know something. It's all the unsuspecting friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, no, yeah. Worry, no, no, no. Bring in some yeah, new guys like yeah, hazing. Yeah. Like, oh, exactly. no, we got them. Oh, what are we doing? What are we doing today? Yeah. Oh, we're just, we're just having fun. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no go Egan's house. Yeah. No go Egan's house. <laughs> yeah. Egan, call you. Don't go there. Yeah. yeah. So you was doing just group lessons, some private lessons, and you would come back here and practice. Mm-hmm. So you got to the blue belt and so on just by doing that? I got my blue belt because... People didn't want me coming into their school as a white belt and submitting, you know, the blue belts, the purple belts, the brown belts. So who gave you the blue belt? I think Hickson gave me my blue belt. 
Yeah, I got my blue belt through Hickson. How long did it take you? My blue belt I got in about a year or two years. That's kind of the normal, though, right? Yeah, a year, two years. Yeah, that's the normal. And then, you know, all the rest of my belts happened the year after because the world championships, I would win the world championships. So the best in the world at blue belt. Next year, I was a purple belt, won the world championship. Now I'm a brown belt. And then my brown belt year, they wouldn't let me do the world championships. They just thought of some kind of fudge to like this. Not let me, because my goal is to win the world championship at every belt level, because there's only like maybe ten guys who's ever done it. So how does that, that world championship work? Then you got to qualify, and then you got how does it work? You don't have to qualify. You got to just show up. You got to enter oh. and show up. That's how it was back then. It's like free for all, pretty much free for all. But no one from the U.S. or anywhere else was going to Brazil to. So the world championships were, used to be in Brazil. It was a tough world championships because there's a lot of good guys in Brazil, even till today. There's guys in Brazil that no one's heard of that could probably beat some of the, a lot of the good, well-known guys here today. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of them. They just don't have enough money to leave Brazil. You had sponsors or something, or you just went? No, I just went. I had to do it. You know, it's like for racquetball, one of the, the reasons why I wanted to be a world champ was because no non-Brazilian was ever a world champ in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And in my head, I was thinking, why? And everybody's like, because it's Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I'm like, so what? Doesn't really matter. They actually learned from the Japanese judo guys. Yeah. And then they made it into a really good street fight. So I thought, man, I can win the world championships. It's like any other sport. Everyone's going to make a mistake, and you got to capitalize on the mistake. And you got to build. If you have the right game strategy, you should be able to win. Then when did you decide, okay, I'm going to go to this world championship? During my blue belt year. Because they said blue belt was the hardest to win. Oh. And I thought, really? So Why? do you represent just yourself? Or how does it work? I was representing the Machado Jiu-Jitsu school because they were taking a team. So I thought, that's I'm going to join California. That's in California. So I joined them, and none of them showed up that year. I ended up being there by myself. What do you mean? They they were like, we're going to meet you there, and nobody came. (laughs) Yeah, they go, we got a team. We're going to represent the U.S. They're going to go. I get there. Doesn't happen. I'm there all alone. Were you like, are you serious? Nobody no, came or you knew you know last what? minute they weren't coming? I knew last minute and again, didn't have internet. So, you know, there's no texting or I don't know. I get to Brazil, nobody's there. I get to the tournament, nobody's there, only me. Were you worried at all or like whatever? No, I was actually so focused that I didn't really even care. Mm. I was going to win no matter what. Like that in my head, I got, I came there to win. And so, you know, all the things that happened along the way didn't even really matter. What was the hardest piece about that journey to winning that blue belt? I think the hardest trying time to win that blue belt was not that I was trying to convince anybody, but in my own head, believing that I could win it. Like in my head, I, yeah, I can win it. I, I know if I have the right game style and, and, you know, like everything else in life, there's always a theory on how you're going to get to from point A to point B, but most of the time it's wrong. So it was kind of like that. And it didn't help that everyone's like, Egan, there's no freaking way. They, the guys in Brazil are so good. You're going to get worked. And, you know, like I had to juggle with that. Like, am I going to go all the way to Brazil and get worked? And in my head, I finally like, you know what? I got to go and find out because I don't want to wonder what if. I'm going to do it and go, oh, yeah, the guys are that good. I cannot believe they're that good. At least I know. But maybe there's a chance they're not that good. Was there a point there where it could have gone the other way? And you'd be like, nah, not going. In the first world championships, not really, because what I did was I went to Brazil three months before the world championships. I stayed for three weeks, and I visited every single school that they said 
the person who would win the tournament. So these are all the contenders. I went there to train. So I went and and they didn't the even know guys. you were like incognito training or what? Nope. They all well, they all thought like ah, this guy from Hawaii from the United States, they're no good. They're drunk. And I, you would kind of go lightly or what in there? Yeah. So basically, what I do is I'd go kind of hard. And then I figure out where my openings were, where my submissions are going to fit in. Like, can I get this guy or not? And as soon as I'd figure him out, I'd be like, let him beat me. And again, that's another, even if it's practice, hard to freaking lose. But I had a game plan. I had a plan. And so the top five contenders, I got to, I knew their whole game, basically. I knew how to beat them. And they thought they could beat me. And there's an article, actually, in one of the magazines. After I won that World Championships, there's an article from half of the guys in Brazil was like, oh, he's such a dirty guy because he came up and he tricked us. And he acted like he didn't know anything and then came back three months later and just annihilated everybody, right? Now, the other guys, the smarter jiu-jitsu guys, were like, oh, that, sucks. that guy's smart. Mm-hmm. And those are the guys I became friends with. Marcelo Garcia, Henzo Gracie, all of the best guys, Ricardo Laborio, all the top guys in the world, Fabio Gojiao, all of those guys in the olden days. I mean, we became really good friends. Did they go, oh, that was a good move? Yeah, all of them go, that, that was good. <laughs> that, that's tricky. That was tricky. So you can only run that trick play once, though. Yeah. Because now you win. It's not like you can show up and it's like, yeah. you're all incognito, bald <laughs> yeah. Japanese guy yeah. from Hawaii. I mean, like, you're not exactly like. I was on their hit list anymore. now. Hmm? Now yeah. I was on their hit list, right? So I went back for my purple belt. My first round, they put me with a guy who's never lost before. Ever. He's 290 pounds, six foot three. He was 290, 290. pounds. And how much were you? 181 pounds. So there's no weight? Well, I Division? was entering absolute, right? Absolute meaning whatever. Whatever weight. Like UFC ish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, like how the UFC first started. Yeah. Yeah. Now there's oh, weight classes. Nuts. Yeah. So what was your plan on that? <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I didn't know what my plan was, but I was going to beat him. That's in my head. I was like, Came to Brazil to win. I didn't come. It was a Brazilian guy. Brazilian guy. And he wasn't all, scared. I was a little scared when I met him. I was like, oh, "Holy crap!" Like, I mean, you can imagine, right? Someone two hundred ninety pounds, six foot two or six foot three, in your head. But when you actually lock up with a guy that size, is then you go, "Holy crap!" Yeah, his foot's probably like size sixteen, seventeen. Yeah, or, you like, know what I mean? Like in that match, I remember like leaning up against him and pushing as hard as I can to try back him up. And I was like, wasn't moving. And I was still kind of slowly going backwards. Your legs were still rock solid top oh, shape. Oh, yeah, I was a top shape. I was, in, yeah. I was probably in the best shape ever at that moment right there. Because I knew I was going to enter absolute, which was guys are going to be way bigger than me. So was there a point in that match where you thought you were going to lose? Well, I guess when we first locked up, I was like, holy crap. What, I don't know how I'm going to get this. All I knew is I wasn't going to get under this guy because I'm not coming back up if I get under this guy. <laughs> yeah. Right. Anyway, I ended up throwing the guy. Two points on a takedown. And then from there on, I was like, this, I'm done. I'm, I thought I could hold on to him and, and finish that way, but he bench pressed me like I was paper and threw so me So you off. just judo kind after that? Just yeah, him down. I, I threw him down, kept him down. He would throw me off of him, but I would jump back on him before he could get up to his feet because I was like, he's not getting Because he's kind of slow? Yeah, he's slower. It takes a little bit more time, and I was able to tackle, like, just keep him not, from getting back up until he started getting tired. But just pure strength, size, and everything. That's oh, yeah. nuts. Oh, yeah. He was so strong. And, you know, I ended up submitting him in that, in, which I think got all the rest of the, all the rest of my opponents after that were like, oh, crap. 
Like, this guy must be crazy strong. What happened on that? What was the setup and, like, situation to choke him out? So when I threw him to the ground, I got on him. I knew I couldn't hold him for very long. So I had to just keep moving from one place to another. I also knew that I'm not going to submit him right away because he's too strong. And I remember going back to when I was fishing, and they always tell you, fight the fish good. So when you get him to the side of the boat, he's tired. Because if not, they're going to bust you up, right? And I remember bringing the fish in fast. And then it's on the side of the boat, and you gaff it, and the thing's that's knocking the crap out of your boat. And then so you drag it into your boat right away because you don't want to lose it, and then it breaks everything in your boat, slapping everything, right? Mm. And so I thought, this is exactly the same thing. I cannot try to submit this guy right away because I'm not going to get it. I'm just going to get beat up or thrown off or lose position. So I just kind of transitioned around his body. I just kept moving around. Like if you started lifting one side of his body here, I'd make sure I put all my weight on the other side. And I just kept shifting back and forth because I'm smaller, I'm quicker. How long did it take to get him tired then? Almost to the end. It was a six-minute match, and I think I tapped him in about five minutes and 15 seconds. So you go switching back and forth, back and forth, and then what? What's going through your mind? I had this one choke that I knew I could get him already, but when I had the choke at the beginning, he just, just powered off, like just powered me off of him. So I couldn't get it. But then I could feel him getting weaker as the time went by. So I went back to that choke at the end. Actually, I had a, I went for an arm lock, a Kimura, and he just straightened his arm. <laughs> and I had two, was two of my arms against his one. And he just went, Argh. so like, okay, <laughs> that ain't going to work. But then, now, of course, that made him a little tired, right? So eventually... At the five-minute mark, I could feel that, okay, I'm going to try to choke again. It's like Sylvester Stallone and Hulk Hogan in the Rocky movie. You know, and he <laughs> yeah, grabs and he just him up yeah, on yeah, yeah. tank. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly how this guy was with me. When you actually um, submitted him, what was going through your mind at that point? I think when I finally made him tap, I was like, oh, my gosh. I can't believe that happened. Like, I was in shock. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't the type of thing where it's like, you see the future as if you already ha- did it and so on. You were actually like, oh, God, I can't believe it. Like, yeah, no, out. yeah, exactly. I wasn't, I, I had no idea. What did the guy say? Oh, he didn't even shake my hand. He didn't even hug me after the match. As soon as the ref lifted my hand, turned around, walked away. Oh. And I wasn't about to go over and go, hey, good match. I didn't want, like, nothing to do with that. Then you get a crack. <laughs> yeah, 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 let him yeah. go. Let him leave angry. And then how many more did you have to win after that? Then I had to win four more matches. Mm-hmm. And then my next match was against a legendary um, Gracie. And he was an up-and-coming young guy, which everyone's like, oh, gosh, you're going to get murdered by him. Which one was it? He was the son of the famous Gracie that everyone claimed was the best Gracie that died in a hang gliding accident. What? Oh, really? I yeah. thought that Hickson was the best. Hickson was the best, but there was a brother that was even really? better than Hickson, supposedly, that mm. died in a hang gliding. This was a son. Oh. So he's the junior. But anyway, the guy's a monster, too. Like today, he's a monster. Like back then, when I caught him when he was 17 years old, he was skinny and tall. I can't remember his name. He's out in New York. He's with Hensel Gracie right now. So that's your friend of yours? Yeah, I went to visit him like maybe three, four years ago. And I looked at him going, oh, my gosh. Good thing you had him in 17. Yeah, and he's like, are you going to train? I go, no, not today. Kind of old for training. <laughs> <laughs> so how did that one go then? That one, I beat him on points. So I took him down. Got all my points and won by points. And then the next one, what? I think all of my matches that year, I won all by points. Yeah, including in the finals. And that one, the finals was probably one of my most exciting wins ever because I dislocated my shoulder in that match and I popped it back in on the railing. Wait, what? Yeah, so that match, again, this guy's 225 pounds. 
way bigger than me. He, so everybody's big compared oh, to you. Oh, everyone's big. Everyone's super big. Like they lift me up like I'm nothing. Anyway, this guy lifted me with his feet. I was on top of him. He lifted me with his feet. And then he swept me, and I landed on my shoulder, dislocated my shoulder. You mean he, his feet pushed you up like that? Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh. Yeah, exactly. And Just then like, you landed on the left shoulder, and then it popped yeah, out? Yeah, because he, he held my hand so I couldn't post. Oh. So I landed straight from there, straight onto my shoulder, and it, it dropped down. Did he see it drop? No, he had no idea. So you're still in there, so what do you yeah, do? Yeah, so I popped back up to my feet. We got to my feet, and then I just stopped. Like we, I broke like the distance, and then I held my shoulder, and the ref gave me an injury timeout. So you get 15 minutes. So in that injury timeout, I'm already down. Because of that throw, he got two points. He got side control, he got another three points, and he mounted me for another four. So now this guy's like 10-0 or 11-0 I'm losing. And I had about was two or three minutes into the match, so there's like another two or three minutes to go. And I run over to my coach, and my coach says, hey, Egan, second place as a world champion in absolute is good. Enough already, enough. And these are the Machado brothers. And I'm like, that's not enough. Time's not up. I didn't lose yet. And they're like, yeah, but this is good enough, Egan, enough. Look, your shoulder doesn't even right. You know what? Just hold my shoulder. And I got to this railing, and I hung my shoulder over it. And I said, hold my arm. And they're like, why? What are you going to do? I said, just hold, pull my arm down. So they start pulling my arm down. And as they're pulling my arm down, I just drop down. And I felt the thing go snap right back in. And like when your shoulder's dislocated and it's out, it's like there's super sharp pains going through your shoulder. But as soon as it goes back in, the pain is like almost gone. Oh. Like it's just weird. But was it stretched pain. out? It was stretched out. So that's the only pain that it had. But compared to the pain that I had before that, it was nothing. So you could still use it. Kinda. Yeah, I could still kind of use it. I like mean, fifty percent or what? It's like more mentally, like you don't want to move it, right? So I get back into the match. First thing, the guy grabs my hand and starts shaking it, and then the sore side. I'm like, going, oh my gosh, he's gonna pull the freaking thing back out again, and it doesn't come back out. In fact, it's that what he was trying to do? Better. He was trying to pull it out. I'm not sure. I'm not sure why he didn't grab the other hand and do that because he was just tugging at it, shaking it. But he was. It was the bus arm. It's right? the bus arm. So he was. Oh, you don't know if he would coach. And I'm like, I think I'm down by one. And he goes, no, 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 you're up by one. Just relax. Just hold the position. Then I look at the guy, and he's so relaxed. I'm like going, this guy's winning. There's no freaking way. And i like, frick, I got to get my leg out of there. So I did everything I can. In fact, the only way I got out is I gave him a position where he thought he could sweep me to get on top. And I had to take that chance where he's going to go for that sweep. So I lopsided. I put all my weight in the wrong spot knowing that he's going to at least try to sweep me. And at that point, I got one one-thousandth of a second to regain my balance to get the points. Freaking happened. Went for the sweep. My legs went in the air. I titter-tottered in the air. Like I could have fell on my back or I could have fell in the right position, which I ended up falling in the right position. And then I held it, held it, held it, held it, about five, six seconds. And then I could feel the guy just let go and quit, and he started clapping. And he then quit before the thing was done? or He heard the buzzer go off. But I wasn't going to let go until the ref told me mm-hmm. to let go. Mm-hmm. So I just held on. So you're still holding him till now then? I'm still holding him. Like, I'm just holding him like inside control like with everything I got. And he started, he lets go. He starts clapping. And I feel him relax. But I'm still holding on, right? Because I'm like yeah. freaking until the ref Everybody tells me Everybody laughing. you still holding him. like, yeah. um, excuse me. <laughs> yeah. Can you let me go yeah. or what? Yeah. So the ref taps me on the Okay, match is over. I let go. I'm like, oh, my God. I freaking won. I cannot believe I won. What did that guy say after? Oh, he was super cool. This guy is oh. super cool. He clapped. Didn't speak really good English, but just came over, shook my hand, bowed. I like unbelievable. That was like, you know, a huge moment for me for any sport. The game's never over until it's 
time's up, right? And I also learned that you never think it's over until the ref tells you it's over. It's, it's nice to see when you have sportsmanship like that, yeah? Yeah, like, oh, yeah. Just like a validation and respect. Yep, totally, totally. And then what about your shoulder? Was it super sore after that or what? Yeah, the shoulder was done. It never did heal properly. So you had surgery or no? No, I'm supposed to have surgery on it, but I'm, I'm going to wait till it falls oh, so out. Oh, so still till then? You never... Oh, till today, yeah. Till I today you it's did ruined. that one already. Uh, I did my right side, my oh. good side. Or my racquetball side, that damage from racquetball. I did and that was side. that your throwing arm too? Yeah, my throwing arm also. So you had slap tear and stuff? Like both that? of them, yeah. So both had mm. slap tears. Or both have slap tears. One was fixed, one's not. Oh, so you just let the left side heal? Yeah, somewhat. What did you do to rehab it? Just regular shoulder exercises. Just all the little ones like that? Yeah, so, so all yeah. the internal, external rotation uh-huh. stuff. And, you know, having the muscle nice and solid and all the surrounding muscles solid and even helps it stay. So... Uh, by this time, you're done completely with racquetball. You don't play no more. Yeah, completely done with racquetball. You ever played racquetball since then, really, or nah? I actually did. I went back to play. They had this uh, U.S. Open in Memphis, Tennessee, and they called me and said, hey, we got this U.S. Open. There's an age group tour going on, and why don't you come out for the finals for the nationals? Oh. So I'm like, all right. You know, my old racquetball company, E-Force, uh-huh. they're going to pay for it. So I'm like, yeah, okay, I'll go. So and I thought, man, I can get some good ribs. It's in Memphis. Okay, uh-huh. let's do this, right? So I went, never played racquetball ever again. I was sore for like three weeks after that. Did you win? <laughs> no. Oh, I got totaled. I finished in the top 10 against all the guys who've been touring. There's a senior tour, which I refuse to be on. <laughs> Why? I just think like sometimes there's a time where it's done mm-hmm. and it's time to move on. It's like same reason like all my friends like, come here and play softball with us. We're all baseball guys. Not playing, sorry. Not mm-hmm. doing it. Not doing it. I'm done with baseball. And then on the racquetball piece then, was it like, bro, if I cannot win, I don't like do this? Um, nah, not really. It was more the pain that I was in that I'm like, this is not worth it. Like oh. I could feel the pain I had in my hips and my shoulders. The, cor- the hard court yep. is real hard in your yep. body. And my knees are swollen like crazy. So I'm like, I'm never doing this again. Was that after the double knee surgery? No, that was, no. So you won the purple and then what comes after purple? Brown. You said they never let you do brown? So how does that work then? I don't know, but I you weigh got brown in. And you show up. I show up. I weigh in. Next day, my name's not on the draw sheet. Like what? Why is my name not on the draw sheet? And then I find out that Helson Gracie showed up and pitched some kind of fit and helped them make some kind of ruling, so I couldn't compete. And then so the referee tells me, or one of the High up referees goes, well, they said you're too good for brown belt. I'm like, oh. I'm not too good for brown belt. Let's see. And then so I said, oh, you know what then? Just put me in the black belt division then. And they're like, well, who gave you your black belt? I don't know. You're giving me my black belt because you're saying I'm too good for brown belt. So I must be a black belt. Put me in the black belt. I'll enter. Nope. Someone has to give you a black belt. I'm like, how am I going to get a freaking black belt now? So then... Andre Pettineris and John Lewis, that's the school now I'm going to represent because the Machados are family to the Gracie. And because of all that issue, they were like, oh, I don't know again. And I said, you know, I don't want to be a burden on you guys. I want us to still be friends because this is such a stupid thing that I'll just go to somewhere else. Anyway, those guys give me my black belt. And they're like, okay, like right there? A, yeah, yeah, you get your black belt, go. Well, you cannot just get your black belt like that. You're a brown belt. So it was this whole twist where they weren't going to let me enter no matter what. So I decided to quit 
Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, and I went full into MMA. You didn't compete it? I didn't compete. Oh, that was it. Because they were trying to loophole, and then you was loopholing your own loophole, yeah. and then it was like, oh, well, I mean, <laughs> yeah. I did it. I got a black belt now. I yeah. It's black, and then no, no go. No go. So you went to Brazil, the whole trip and everything? and then No, that one was in Florida. Oh. So I was in Florida, but that's but still, still a freaking long way to go. How much did you argue it? I argued all the way to the end. Even afterwards, I was trying to get my money back for my flight. I was trying to get yeah. my, at least I wanted my entry fee back. Because you guys knew that you weren't going to let me enter before I even got there. I could tell. I knew that was happening. I could tell just by the vibe and, and the guys weren't as friendly. As I was doing my little bit of research, there's like article that said something about like your gi was too tight or something. Yeah. That's the one? No. There was a tournament right before that, and that tournament was in Hawaii. That was at, oh. at Kaiser High School, where they just kept messing with my gi, and that's the same gi I won the world championship with. And this is the same organization, the IBJJF. And they made such a stink over my gi, but it wasn't only my gi. That was the end. Before that happened, I had a 10 a.m. match, and so I warm up, get ready. My opponent's not there. So that's your brown belt, your brown this belt. That's my brown belt. Uh-huh. So I'm like... So the, in any sport I ever know, if your they opponent's forfeit, not there, right? it's a forfeit. Yeah. But they're like, oh, no, we're going to go 2 o'clock. He couldn't make it at 10. Whatever. Warm up again. 1.30, I'm warming up. 2 o'clock comes. 2.15 comes. Where's my opponent? Not there again. And they're calling us on the big mic. I get over there, and they're like, you're not here. 4 o'clock. But now, now I'm starting to get, like, I'm there all day long now. Yeah. I'm laying in the bleachers going, oh, my gosh, what the heck, right? And before that all happened, one of my friends that was training at Gracie goes, hey, they're going to mess with your gi, so make sure you bring an extra gi that's super big so you can fight. Mm. And I'm like, they oh, told me that. Oh, you have a skinny one. Or, yeah, oh. because you want it as, as tight as possible that's legal, so it's a oh. little harder to grab. Because oh. if you have a too big one, the guys grab it, and you can't let them, mm. you can't get your arm free again. So the guy finally shows up at 4 o'clock. Now, now I'm freaking pissed. Like now I'm thinking to myself, if I get a submission, I'm not gonna let go. This guy's gonna pay the price big time, right? And so we get into was the, it even the guy's fault or he? No, it's not even his fault. It wasn't the poor guy. Yeah, exactly. Like, oh, what's, what's going on? Yeah, because he walks in. Hey, what's up, Egan? Okay, hey, what's up? You ready? Yeah, I'm ready. I said, where were you at ten? Huh? What are you talking about? Oh, they said that you couldn't make it at ten. Oh no, no one told me nothing. They said four o'clock. I said, so you knew the whole time, 4 o'clock? Yeah, I was at home resting. I was like, oh, interesting. I didn't want to tell him what happened. Oh, so now it's like, oh, this guy doesn't even know what's going on. Yeah. So now I'm thinking, like, the guy who told me about my gi is probably going to happen. Sure enough. And I, had, I still remember, Hoyler Gracie was the ref. And everyone's like, oh, the gi, check his gi. Hoyler Gracie checks my gi. He goes, oh. it's on video. He's giving the thumbs up. It's good. Game, match is about to start again. The officials come back in again. Stop, stop, stop. Got to check the gi. Then Hoyler Gracie takes off his refing stuff, puts it on the mat, walks off the mat. Mm. Now we don't have a referee. Mm-hmm. Another guy comes walking in. He pinches my gi like two inches. And the rule was that if the gi's just hanging, you can put a hand inside like this. Oh. But he pinches it by inch and goes, well, first he puts it in and he looks at the guys and he goes, Wait, who's like doing this. that? This new ref. Oh, new ref. Oh. Yeah. So he looks at all the guys who are protesting me and he puts his hand in. He goes, he gives them the, on the side like, it's good. <laughs> oh, they're talking Portuguese. Blah, 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 blah. All of a sudden he pinches like an inch or two inches off and goes, sorry. Gee's too small. It's like the OJ glove. So I was like, all right. Yeah. 
So like, all right, fine. I got a huge gi, like two sizes too big for me in uh-huh. the car. So I go, okay, wait, I'm going to get it. I run to my car. I come back. They won't let me in the freaking arena. They have the security guards blocking. So I'm like, oh, it's like that. So then my brother comes out. What's going on, Aiden? Let's go. They're waiting for you. I said, yeah, these freakers won't let me in. Big freaking guys, like 400-pound guys blocking the door. So my brother just starts going off. Big fight happens. Huge oh, fight. Oh, he starts fighting the bouncers? Oh, he starts fighting the bouncers. And my dad gets involved, and I get involved. And then Your dad was fighting the bouncers? Oh, yeah. So now Your dad does jujitsu? No, but my dad was underneath one of them at oh. one point. And that's where I ran over there. How, how old was your dad? I don't know. My dad must have been at least 60 years old at the time. And he was scrapping? Oh, yeah. He was a freaking yeah. scrapper. He's like my brother. Oh. Right. So anyway, I see that. I'm like, now I flip out. Why is he kind of old to be? Yeah, right? Man. And this guy's over him, right? So I, I grabbed the guy with a guillotine. And I don't know how I did it, but you know how you hear those stories of, of women that their kid is stuck mm-hmm. under the car and they lift the car? It was kind of like that because this guy's like 450 yeah, pounds. And I lifted him up through a guillotine, which is like basically by his neck. So I lifted him off my dad and I threw him on a table with all the shirts. And like the table broke because the guy's that big. And like this whole melee broke out. Freaking police came from... Kanyo-y. Oh, it was like gang fight, uh, like yeah. a whole group. Oh, yeah. Well, it seemed like it was, but it was basically Ensign and I freaking attacking the bouncers, basically. That's all it was. Oh, so the other people inside wasn't really beautiful. Yeah, they were trying to stop trying us from stop fighting. Yeah, like, everyone was trying to stop like, it, and it looked really ugly. And people that, I guess what went up on the radio was that the Inouye brothers are having a steroid rage. <laughs> <laughs> so guys from Pro City came. Kanye, like every oh, police nuts. station came. Like had 30, 40 police officers or cars in the parking lot. For this stupid thing. Are roids allowed? No. Roids are not allowed. Oh. And if you guys knew my brother and I and watched us, like, I'm the same size as I was when I was fighting. And then what? They stopped the tournament then? No, they didn't. The tournament kept going on. And inside the arena, they acted like nothing was happening. Oh, so people inside didn't know nothing? Yeah, a lot of them did, but they kept the thing going. Then the cops came because you can't go in anymore, right? Everything kind of broke up. I had to leave the premise. My whole family had to leave the premise, which is fine. That was all good. And now, you know, it was because of Helsing Gracie, right? He's the one that created that whole freaking thing. So, I mean, I guess you guys don't get along then. Yeah, and at that tournament, he called me out. He st- stood on the table and he was saying, he what goes, that mean? you're a thought in your daddy's head when I was a black belt. Oh. So you weren't even born when he was a black belt. Mm-hmm. Is basically what he's saying, that, that he was that much better than me. And well, so just older. I, so at that point, I was like, let's go right now. Mm-hmm. And so my guys from my school made a circle and locked hands so nobody could break it up. And he was standing like, on the table. Oh, a circle around both of you? No, yeah, around me that made, made like a you. ring. Uh-huh. Made like a ring so we could fight. And I remember going, let's go. Come down off that table. And I remember walking up to the table and he just kept pointing down at me, saying all kinds of crappy stuff to me. And I'm like, come on, let's settle it right now. Oh. He wouldn't do it. And then two days later, I get a restraining order. He's filing a restraining order against me. So do you ever think that like you two could, I don't know, make up? No, right now we're all good. Because when his father finally passed away, I ran into him and I went up to Helsin. I mean, no matter how bad it was, if it wasn't for his dad, jiu-jitsu wouldn't be around. His dad was oh. one of the four founders of Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Yeah. So I, you know, I went and I told him that. I said, I'm sorry to hear about your dad. And, and he hugged me and he was pretty cool. Oh, so nowadays you guys are good. Yeah, I mean, after that whole incident happened and it was water under the bridge, I moved on. I mean, that was that was the past. But I know he was having issues with me 
Because I would hear it from all kinds of, oh, you can say, he said this about you, he said that about you. But then every time I would do something good in the MMA career, he goes, that was my student. I trained him, but he never did train me. But I, I never did fight that. I just let that go. Well, you know what might be interesting is actually if you guys had a conversation. Yeah. To really understand, and not so much like you did this, but like what was going on with me at the time. Yeah. Because, you know, he might have had stuff going on family-wise. Oh, yeah, stuff. totally. You know, you, people got shit going on. So oh, yeah. it's like you might find that, that you guys are really, really alike. Yeah. Yeah, I don't out. know if he was trying to do it or not, or it just happened that. Because he saw your arm. shoulder came out, right? Oh yeah, he knew I was hurt because everyone watched that whole thing, and uh, it actually made it feel better. Oh, and then <laughs> we got to the ground again. Same thing. I started racking up the points. There's 15 or 20 seconds left in the match, and we already think I'm winning. My coach is like, "You're up by one," but it was actually another guy was up by one, and I'm stuck in what they call half guard. I need to get my leg out from between his two legs in order to get a pass, which gives me three points, which mm-hmm. make me would, I would win by two. And now there's 15 seconds left. And I look at the scoreboard. I look at my... And what's interesting is recently I ran into this other black belt jiu-jitsu guy that's friends with me and he's friends with Helson. Mm. And he, as a median, like went back and forth. Like, oh, Helson said this. And, and, you know, he... Oh, tell Helson I said this. And he was like, you know what? I think you guys are cool. You know, you yeah. guys, next time that he's in Hawaii again, maybe you guys should sit down and have lunch. He goes, I'll come and I'll be the host. And I said, sure. So it hasn't happened, but if it does happen, that'd be fine. I mean, I yeah. have no issues. I'm good. All that restraining order is pretty shitty, you know. I mean, you both fighters. Yeah. Right? So, I mean, instantly once you feel anything, you the instinct is going to be fight. Yeah. So, exactly. but maybe afterwards, people are sitting back and reflecting on things going, you know what? Uh, but you cannot really, because you got the schools, everybody yeah. looking and all this kind of BS going around. Yeah. Whereas now you take a look at it, both have respect for this sport. You both yeah. love this. You love your students. You yeah. both have strong honor. I guarantee if you actually sat there and had the right facilitated discussion, you will see we are like. The, the interesting thing is I know for a fact that if it was jiu-jitsu against another martial art and Helsin was leading that, I'd be right behind Helsin. Mm-hmm. I'd back him up. No matter yeah. what our problem was, we still believe in jiu-jitsu. And, you know, jiu-jitsu is what we believe in. Just like promote. when they said, I forget one movie or whatever, it was like Japan. And when Japan is like the, f- the five fingers of the hand and the, when Japan is attacked, they all become the fist the like fist. that. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I always felt that way. No matter what happened between Helson and I, I'm still really good friends with all his brothers, mm. all his cousins, and we've always had a good relationship. I've never had a bad... That's the only time I had a bad relationship with anyone in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu was that. The funny thing, too, is like, you know, like when you're young, especially for the girls we watch, and they, they you know, they minimize, they do stuff to each other, but the guys is always like, oh, bro, oh, bro, and then, and then once they kind of get into it, then after it's like, oh, bro, you don't, man. And they're all good friends, <laughs> yeah, right? Like, seventh yeah, grade, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. do whatever, and it's like, yep. bro, you, you, you tough, boy, you yeah. tough, and then they're like, okay, we'll go eat lunch, and, yeah, then, yeah, yeah. and then now, it's like, oh, you guys were friends a long time? Oh, yeah, we never liked each other initially, but now we're friends, you know? Yeah. But I wonder if it's like that. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. Yeah. It, it, I, I think it is. Because you, you get mutual respect for oh, each yeah, other. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So after that, then it's like, okay, I'm out of the BJJ and I'm going to go into MMA. So yeah. MMA means what? You can strike and so on. Yeah. So MMA at that time was no holds barred pretty much. You could basically do almost anything. Did you try to go to UFC kind or was it not really the big thing then? Or No, what? UFC was big. And, you know, I thought I'm just going to go MMA. But I've never been a real fighter fighter. Like, I never really liked fighting. Like, I didn't get into street fights. I didn't get into fights at school. I mean, one or two because I had to. And um, 
my brother actually got me into it. Like I always thought about it, but like, yeah, I quit jujitsu. Maybe I'll go into fighting. Ah, whatever. Because right? he started doing the Japan one. Yeah, because he started doing Japan. He moved mm. to Japan and did this thing called Shuto. And then one of his fights, he was super sick and he couldn't fight. And the promoters are going to make him fight. And I just, I was there because I was going to work his corner for him. And they said, oh, if he fight, if he, I fight, then they'll let my brother off. Was it like Hunger Games? Shit. Was, like, right? I'm like going, you know. Don't take her, take me. Yeah, it was yeah. kind of like that in a sense, yeah. right? And like, what, what is my choice? My brother's not feeling good. What's the chances he's going to win? And if he's going to take, I'll take the beating for him. It's kind of like my thought. So I took that fight and I won the fight. You were training though. I was already in jiu-jitsu. I already won the world championships twice in jiu-jitsu. So I kind of had titles behind my name. And I think that's why so the they promoter promote was okay. Then on, on yeah, that. so the promoter is okay with that. And so, and of course I won by submission. So he became your corner person? Yeah, he was my corner. Was he out of it? Not out of it, but he wasn't, you know, he was definitely not in fight shape. Was your dad there? No, just was Ensign and I. They say, okay, you got to fight. He's like, ah, oh, kagging. And then they say, okay, you can fight. And then did it take a long, or you say, okay, I'll do it then, or or what? You had to think about it. Oh, no. I had I had to answer right at the moment. Oh. Yeah. And it, when was the fight going to be then? Next day. Did you have to weigh in? You had to weigh a certain weight? I had to weigh in that day. But he's bigger than you, right? He's bigger, so it was an unlimited weight class. So Muscle for whatever. me to weigh in was no big deal. I was underweight either way. Was that the first match or was this like the premier one? That's the main event. That's why they wouldn't let him go. If it was a lower match, I'm sure they would have just oh, canceled it. Because then it messes up your whole it's, thing, yep. right? When it's like, the main event, man, if the main event cancels and you don't get a replacement. Like how many people were there? It's a small arena. So I, I want to say that arena would hold 3,000, no, 2,000 people maybe. So it was a small okay. thing. but Like on school yeah. gym size. Yeah, like a school. Yeah, exactly, like a school gym size. And then, were you nervous? Oh yeah, frick yeah! I was super. I didn't know what to do. Were you scared? I was super scared too. What was the thing that scared you? I was scared of the unknown, and I think that I had to go back into where you know how they say that ninety-two percent of the things that you were about never happen. I had to really convince myself of that. Because in my head, I was like, oh, I'm going to get freaking beatings from this guy. Freaking broken jaw, black eye, broken nose. Oh, crap. I don't know what I'm going to get from this guy. Because he's a stand-up guy. Oh. And instead of thinking to myself, like, I'm going to get him to the ground. I'm going to, like, you know, like, how are you supposed to but do But you're it? a stand-up guy, too, though, from before. I was a stand-up guy, too, but I, Not I was more of a jiu-jitsu guy. Oh. You know? I, I wasn't really training my stand-up anymore. I was a stand-up guy from when I was young, but I wasn't really a jiu-jitsu, you know. I, wasn't, I was more of a jiu-jitsu guy. I hadn't worked on my hands and my you know at that time yet yeah so i was super nervous did you wish you had those cards at that time from racquetball no because this was a whole different thing it was more like uh fear it was yeah i was scared i was scared of getting hurt i didn't want to get hurt i didn't want a broken freaking eye what do you do in order to resolve this fear so what a grappler has to do to win a fight is you got to get your opponent to the ground but both of them are trying to do that right no, the guy didn't want to go to the ground because he's a stand-up guy. Oh, it was like the original UFC kind. kind yep, that's how oh. long ago it was. It was like the stand-up guys against the ground oh. guys, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, and it still kind of goes on to today, but now everybody kind of knows jiu-jitsu, right? So now it becomes more of a striking game. But, you know, if you're a striker and you start losing and you know jiu-jitsu, striking, you're going to take it to the ground and take your chances in, in that part of the game. Whereas for me, I had no confidence in my stand-up. It was all jiu-jitsu. And I had to keep reminding myself, 90% of the street fights end up on the ground. Mm-hmm. So the chances of knocking someone out cold when you're ready looking at the guy is, is very slim. 
I mean, it happens, but it doesn't happen that often. Right? Especially if one guy's trying to take the other guy down. And then the striker is always a little nervous that, oh, man, if I get taken to the ground, I don't know ground. I'm going to. So they don't try to hit you as hard as they would normally hit you because. Might lose balance. They might lose balance or they might miss or whatever it is, right? So I just have to basically go all night long convincing myself, like getting into the ground, visualizing me getting the guy to the ground and executing one of the submissions. But I also knew that once I got to the ground, I was going to be fine. Because that person's toasted because they don't oh, really yeah, know. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I researched the guy and he had no ground. So I'm like, once I get to the ground, it's over, right? So what, do you, what did you do to research? I just talked to like everybody who like, you know this guy, you know this guy, oh. you know this guy, Gordon Depp. Like the old-fashioned way. Like old, fa- yeah, that's the only way we could do it because you, you couldn't look yeah. him up online. So I asked, asked all the different, you ever saw this guy? Yeah. And they knew because they someone had to know because why would he be, out of all the people in the world to fight, why would they pick this guy? He must have some kind of credit to him, right? So... Anyway, someone's like, yeah, he's a pure stand-up guy. He's no ground. So how did that match go then? I submitted him. How long? Yeah. I want to say the fight didn't last more than a minute and a half. Because once you got him to the ground, it was over. Yeah. (laughs) Once you got him to the ground, it was over. So once you got him on the ground, were you like, oh, this is done? Not really, because I got him to the ground, and I I I was sitting on him when I got to the ground. And then I was going for my submission, and then he freaking reversed the position, and I ended up on the bottom. And then so he was able to throw a couple punches. Oh, so he was at actually me. more skilled than so I was, like, was expecting. Oh, kind of yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, I I thought you know. Oh, so now you're in the bottom in guard. <laughs> no, on the bottom, I got him in guard, and now he can hit me. Mm-hmm. And I was like, holy crap! I took one hit, I blocked the second one, and I shot up what they call a triangle, and then I submit him with the triangle. The the leg one around the neck. Yeah, the leg one around the neck. So when you were up, did you take any hits on when you guys were standing? Nope. I took no hit standing. How did you take him down? So what I did is I threw a jab and not even to hit him, just to like try to get in the way to get into his vision or make him blink. And then I tap football, like almost a football tackle pretty oh. much. And how heavy was that guy? I think he was only 200 pounds. So he was only like, you know, 19 pounds heavier than I was. But 19 pounds still makes a difference. It does. It does. When the skill is even, then that weight starts making a difference or strength starts making a difference. Oh. But skill level on the ground was so mismatched that, you can have a small guy. If your skill's way better than a big guy, you can keep him on the ground. So was it accidental then that you entered into MMA or you were yeah. kind of going to go, but then you're waiting or something? And then well, it was a thought, mm-hmm. but it was one of those like, ah, maybe one day, which means maybe not. Yeah, never. Yeah, maybe <laughs> yeah. never, right? One day I'm going to clean the house. Yeah. yeah. Or like one day, everyone's like, you got you to come play pickleball with me. One day. Yeah. It's probably never. Yeah. <laughs> so that was what my fighting was like. And did you start fighting more in Japan then? That's where yep. you got your start? Yep. I started oh. in Japan and then I ended up just retiring in Hawaii. You didn't try the UFC? So after my first fight, I was already getting paid three to 5000 per fight. And every time I fought, it would double. It would double. I would just negotiate double. Now, UFC came in offering me 500 bucks, And I'm like, I, $500? I don't, That's I don't it. like fighting that much. $500? $500. That's what how, Randy Couture started. How did they make any yeah. money? I think back then, you know, Selling with the sponsors and stuff. Or yeah. What did they do? Yeah, they were making money through that and through pay-per-view because pay-per-view was already banging already. And, uh, oh, so the fighters get 500 bucks, but then they get pay-per-view a bit. Oh. Yeah. But no, actually, the fighters only get 500 bucks if Why you win. are they doing that then? Oh, like, because a lot of them love... Like, my brother fought UFC for 500 bucks. For 500 bucks? So it's kind of like... Well, at least they brought someone, yeah. you know, like that. Okay, I get to fight somebody at yeah. least and not get in trouble. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So they get to fight, right? And to me, 
I fought because I wanted to get paid. I didn't. Five hundred bucks wasn't going to even pay my freaking supplements today. You know, that doesn't pay nothing. Yeah, it doesn't pay for my vitamins. Doesn't pay for like, you know everything. My How much did they get paid now? Oh, now they're making millions. Oh, you know, a couple hundred thousand a fight, and or so. If it was now, you would get you would go UFC. I would have probably went UFC if now, but I think they still offer the beginning fighters a, like really low. But you know, the promise is I'm going to make your household name. So that's what they told me. They go, it's only five hundred bucks. We're not going to pay any more than that. Every time you win, your fight money will go up, but we're going to make your household name. But I was like, you might, I don't you might care be about dead me too. Now. Yeah, I don't want to be a household name. I don't care. I, I need money. So when you finished in Hawaii, what was the purse at? So I my last fight, I, I got 90000 So Was that the one Marcelo Tiger won? No, I was 42 years old. I had retired for about oh, five 42. years. And I made a comeback against a 20-year-old. So I was 42 against a 21-year-old. How was that? One. I beat him within a minute. Oh, yeah. And then after they said, enough already. Yeah, and, you know, because I won that fight, I thought it's a good way to finish it. It would have win. Because five years before that, I got hurt and I lost. And I didn't fight again for five years. Which I one was that I one? I want to say it was Mayhem Miller. Oh, that's the guy you fought? Yeah, I, I broke something in my my rib. During the fight or During before? the fight. Oh. Yeah, I was beating him the whole fight. If you watch that fight, I was beating him down the whole time. And then he jumps in the air and I, we land funny. And then my rib head. Some, something Dude, my those, ribs those suck that, oh yeah the cartilage popped can't out can't even laugh for nothing I mean, oh yeah I couldn't even sleep for days so at that point it's out done already yeah right? I said that's it I'm done yeah so you still get the purse though mm, depends some of my fights I can't remember what that one was but most of the time like say they offer me $50,000 to fight I would be like you know what just pay me 25000 mm-hmm. but if I win you give me an extra fifty. so then I make seventy five instead mm-hmm. of fifty. and most promoters would take that because they would only end up paying me instead of a set fee. Yeah. And then I, I also would negotiate that, you know, if you give me a set fee, I already make the money. So why, if I win or if I'm losing, I just going to quit. Yeah. But if I can get 50000 more if I win, I said, you break my arm, I'm still going to fight. Mm-hmm. But if I guarantee fifty grand, break my well, arm, I bought I it, right? Yeah, I don't, I'm not yeah. going to even let my arm break because yeah. it ain't worth it. Mm-hmm. So that's how I would convince them to all right. Looking back now, would you still have taken that many fights or would you have switched it up because you know you have your business and all that stuff? Would you still do that and take the beating on your body? Yeah, I think I still would have done the same thing because I think fighting didn't really beat me up as much as racquetball did. Oh. So a lot of my injuries or a lot of the surgeries that I've had was mostly all from racquetball. Really? Yeah. So like all my knee surgeries is all racquetball. Is that because on the hard courts you're having to yep. stop, go, stop, stop and go? Stop, go. go? Change directions, oh. like all of that. That's and it was mostly your knees and stuff, or are you like shoulders? Mostly my knees. Oh. My knees. And what about your elbow? My shoulder, my elbow. I had elbow surgery too, but it was after a jiu-jitsu, the world championships, oh. the no-gi. I fought a big guy, and I, I thought I was going to escape. And when you try to escape in certain ways and you don't escape, then something in your arm is going to pop. Oh. But that was just a chance I had to take, and it popped. Mm-hmm. And so I had a loose well, elbow. You got to take that chance. Yeah, right? Yeah. So. I had to take the chance. I won the match, so it was oh. worth it, right? But I had surgery like within a month later. Oh, it's worth it because I won, but I still going to take the Yeah, surgery, but so. then when they oh, go in the x-ray and they go in with the scope to get it out, they're like, you know what? That was an old injury. Oh. You did something to your elbow a long time ago, and it's like racquetball. So then when you retire from the jiu-jitsu thing and from the MMA, then you start the business? Yeah, so I started the business when I first retired from MMA. 
And then while I had my business, I went back and fought one more time. Didn't you do something recent to BJJ kind of tournament, like Masters one? Yeah, I think after I retired from MMA, I went into the submission grappling more. Uh-huh. So it was without a gi. Mm-hmm. And what happened was the Sheik from Abu Dhabi, which is amazing because I just saw him on Instagram. And I looked at the picture. I go, I know that Sheik. And the article was basically saying how he runs a trillion dollar business, $10 trillion or something ridiculous. And I'm like, hey, that's the chic that did the jiu-jitsu tournaments or the, the submission grappling tournaments. And I, it was, sure enough, it was him, which is oh. really small because this guy started off jiu-jitsu or he started off the world championships, the submission world championships by selecting by himself the top 60 guys in the world who he thought was the best. And he'd bring us all, almost like the Bruce Lee movie. And they would pay? Oh, I pay us like so much money. Like, you're stupid if you didn't go. Mm-hmm. Right? Or not even stupid. It's like there's no, not one person did not go. Oh. <laughs> Everybody yeah. showed up. Yeah. Right? So you get there and you got all the best guys in the world there. It's like enter the dragon. Enter the dragon. Exactly yeah. what I thought. Because I'm like going, huh. And then all these other sheiks are betting on you. And then you're like going, oh, no, this is weird. Right? And then you got guys like after your first match, you get a guy come over and goes, like he brings a um, translator and goes, you wear this shirt with my logo on it. You win. I give you 5000 each time you win with my shirt. Oh, what? Mm-hmm. Sure. I'll do it. Mm-hmm. So they'd give me the shirt, wear the shirt. After the match, comes over, freaking fresh freaking $100 bills, $5,000. I'm like, <laughs> what? Like, seriously? Freaking, I really want to win again. Mm-hmm. Right? So each match after you win, they bring you some more shirts. And they bring you some more cash. And you're like, whoa, this is freaking insane. And then you really feel like Enter the Dragon from Bruce Lee, right? You so. feel like, oh, man, they're just, they're just buying me or whatever. Or, nah, because I'm I getting paid. I was a little scared because Bruce Lee, everybody died, right? Yeah. Except Bruce Lee. So I was like, I'm going to knock us all off at the end. But nah, it was such a good experience. And then after my first year that I entered it, the sheik himself who ran it asked me to come and stay. Well, actually, he wanted like me to stay. he was your friend? Like your friend well, he wanted me to help train him. Mm-hmm. So he wanted me to stay for a whole month, and he was going to pay me $1,000 a day. So I'm like, frick, I can leave here with 30000 cash and my prize money from the freaking tournament. But I was like, I got to get home. Um, so I went home, and then he'd call me and say, hey, when can you come? I want you here for a month. We'll pay for everything. So I went and I stayed there for a month. Two Did different. Fly times. you in his jet kind? No, I just he just sent the first class ticket. I flew first class, five star hotel, no expenses. So awesome. Eat whatever you want, and then in those hotels are like ten different restaurants. I mean, if you go to Abu Dhabi, look at the hotels in Abu Dhabi yeah. and Dubai. That's the kind of the seven star ones. Yeah, the ridiculous, yeah. ridiculous kind, right? And every night I was ordering lobster tail. Yeah, in the room. Like four times a night. <laughs> like, wow, no way. Don't even finish it because whatever. Yeah, 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 so yeah. Free. Exactly. And then all the shops, I'd be shopping and just charging it to it's my like room. next level Vegas. Kind. Oh, great. Like next level Vegas. Totally. Yeah. And, you know, that was the tournament. And, you know, that tournament too was another stepping stone for me, right? Because there were two guys that I had to fight in the tournament. One guy, his name was Ricardo Laborio. In my second year in Brazil... At the World Championships, the taxi driver was trying to charge me $90 for a $6 taxi ride. And I had my luggage in there in the front seat, so he wouldn't let me have it. Because I'm like going, it says, look at your meter. He goes, yells at me, writes it down on paper. I'm like going, 
I pull out my money. I'm going, I don't have that much money, 90 bucks. It says $6. So I'm trying to pay him. This guy, Laborio, comes up. What's the matter, my friend? You got a problem? I go, yeah. And so I explain to him. He goes over there. He slaps a taxi driver a couple of times, grabs my luggage, and then goes, let's go. So I'm like, <laughs> who is this guy? So I follow him, and I watch all his matches. He wins the black belt division in the world championships in the absolute division, submitting every single black belt. And I'm like, oh, frack. This guy's unreal. Anyway, the other experience I have in Brazil, and I'll get to the end of the story real quick, but Henzo Gracie, I'm a blue belt. He's a black belt. He freaking just does every submission possible on me, just like ridiculous. But he's so cool that he doesn't make me tap. Just when I'm about to tap, he switches to another submission. And then I'd fight again, fight again. And just before I tap, he'd switch to another one. And he did that for a whole hour on me. And I'm like having That's tiring. I was, oh, I was so tired, but I was having so much fun because as I'm getting put in the submission, he's telling me how to try to escape. But I can't. Like, the guy's so freaking good. I can't escape. I'm like, what? And then by the time I can't move right. I'm like, just freaking guy, do whatever you want. I can't move. I quit. <laughs> and then that's by my memory of Hensel Gracie. Mm-hmm. Like, this guy's a god. Like, this is unbelievable. This never happened to me. A year later is Abu Dhabi. Mm-hmm. I got to fight both these guys. They're in my same weight class in my same division. So Laborio's first. And I'm going, oh, my gosh, I don't want to beat this guy. This guy saved me. Anyway, I beat him. Next round is Hensel Gracie. I'm like, oh, I don't want to fight Hensel. He's so bad. I beat Hensel. And by beating those two guys basically made my name. As a blue belt? I was a black belt. Oh, black belt. Yeah, I was a black belt by the time. It was like a year and a half oh, or yeah. two years later. And I find myself fighting these two guys that I was like, oh, Imagine if it was now when you had all the social media and all that kind of oh, stuff. Oh, yeah. Right? It would have been crazy, right? Yeah. But... You know, I post the match because we have video of the match of, you know, me beating him. But what an unbelievable thing, you know. And then it really goes back to mindset. And at that time, Ricardo Loborio, if we did straight up jujitsu with a Gian, no chance against the guy. He would have murdered me. Henzo Gracie, same thing. He would have murdered me with a Gian. But because there was no Gi, it gives me a little bit more advantage. Mm. Because there's nothing more to grab on. The techniques with the gi, yeah. that, you know, there's so much more techniques with the gi. So it, it takes away some of their game. And because it's a no gi, you're way more slippery. Mm-hmm. So that was the advantage that I had, which was really small, but I had to capitalize on that. And that was the only way I was going to beat those two guys. And w- when do you end up at this spearfishing thing? So the spearfishing thing was while I was playing racquetball. So I tore my a ligament in my knee, and I didn't want surgery. So what I did is I rehabbed it with those big fins for freediving. And when I was using those fins to freedive, I met some freedivers in the Mono swimming pool. And they were doing this killer workout. And I was like, oh, man, let me jump in. So I started doing it with them. I'm going, oh, this is fun. I mean, again, challenging. What kind of workout? Super underwater breath hold. So you're swimming as far as you can under the water. When you come up, you can only take five breaths, and then you go again. And they were swimming the distance of the pool underwater but going as slow as you can, not trying to go fast. And so, you know, holding your breath for long, it's like, oh, it's so painful when you come up lightheaded. Anyway, I, I loved it. And then they start telling me, oh, yeah, we dive 50 feet, 60 feet. The good guys can dive 100 feet. I go, 100 feet with one breath? And like, yeah, I'm like, oh, my gosh, I got to see this. 
And then the guy showed me pictures of the Fisher Spear, and they're spearing these freaking 50, 60 pound lures. And I'm going, holy crap, this is, I want to do this now. <laughs> Forget about racquetball, I want to do this. And during that year, I was able to dive over 100 feet. I speared a over 100 pound lure, which till today, there's, if you go to Hanapa, the dive shop, there's a trophy on the, on the wall, and they have all the plaques of all the guys who speared 100. There's still less than 10. Because free diving, shooting a hundred pound lua is like, gotta be lucky, and you know, in many ways. Then you gotta drag that thing up. You gotta drag that thing up. You gotta fight it. You gotta shoot it in the right spot. They gotta, it's gotta be there at the spot where you're gonna shoot it at. So that's by chance, right? So all of the things have to be lucky, but you also gotta be in shape because you're gonna fight this thing in in the water. And you know, we're not made to be in the water. So you did that for a bit, and then you just stopped doing the free diving. Yeah, then eventually I stopped doing the free diving. I think when I was fighting, one of my fights, I broke my eardrum oh. in the fight. And from then on, I stopped doing the free diving because diving deep was going to be almost so impossible. If you've been able to kind of hit world championship level, like the elite level on all of these different things, if you had to kind of break it down into these are the main takeaways or the main points that someone else could copy that mm-hmm. within themselves, then what would you say for that? So I think that the most important thing is the consistency. You got to be practicing the right things also, whatever sport it is. You got to know what it, you need to take. And I feel like a lot of the mistakes that people are making nowadays is that they forget about the basics. They want to go to the fancy stuff. They want to go to the showy stuff. They want to go to the things that's fun because basics are never fun, right? It's even like, like I always talk about building a house. When you build a house, the foundation has to be solid. You know how they make sure the, the ground is packed? It wasn't a swampland under. It wasn't whatever. They, you got to do all of that check first. And then they build this freaking concrete slab, right? Because it's got to hold up the house. That's what basics are. Exactly that. And then the framework in the house. You don't make a mistake on the framework because that's the integrity of the house too, right? So that's how I look at everything that I do. I break it down into all of that. And then are you willing to do it every single day? Are you willing to be crappy at it and it's going to just inch by inch or millimeter by millimeter get better and get better and get better? That's one of the main things that you got to be able to do in order to be good. I think that's the takeaway. And that's why I was able to go one sport to the next, to the next, to the next, because that work ethic and that idea is the same. And I think anyone successful in life, that's what it is. As we've been talking together in here, and even when I talk sorry with you in like the water and so on there's like an energy that runs through you that is has a lot of momentum where does that come from does it come from your family or where does that come from i don't know it's like an energy source or i feel like it's within me it's a source and it's a flow yeah and i feel like it's in a sense like an inspiration like yeah it's like where i get my inspiration from and i think that energy is strong because i'm inspired by a lot of things you know like I'm inspired by my family and, and trying to live the right way. So my kids, because I want to be a good example for my kids. So that's inspiration for me. That's an energy line. That's a floor. That's a, a vibe that I put out, right? And in my boot camp classes and the people who come to my gym, these guys inspire me too because not only am I trying to show them like that you don't have to be on a strict, strict diet to be healthy. You can eat whatever you want. And it's not one cheat day. Oh, how many cheat days do you have? Again, it's not a matter of a cheat day. I basically eat whatever I want on every day, whatever I feel like I want to eat. 
And yeah, I have a certain plan at how much I eat or, or what's the breakdown in my macros, what the breakdown is. I have that in my head. I've hit that. But how I get to those macros is up to me. Mm-hmm. And it's not really strict. And I feel like that's the kind of things that inspire me. Like when I see my other clients, because at first they come in, oh, I want to lose weight. They go super strict diet. They get to their weight, but they, don't, they come back up again. And they, that keeps happening. And then when I f- see them finally get it, that's what inspires me a lot. Because, okay, I do it, you do it. That's inspiration because a lot of people think that the things that I do, only I can do. And I feel like everyone can do it. But you got to be willing to sacrifice some stuff. Mm-hmm. Right? And like I always say, like Mike Tyson said, discipline is knowing what you want most compared to what you want right now. And I feel like most people, what they want right now overrides what they want most. And they forget about what they want most. Or they go, ah, one time's not going to hurt it. Right? And that one time always goes to two times. And then those two times go to three times. Right? Like people know, like for example, the new studies on drinking, people say like women, one drink is okay. More than one drink is obsessive now. That's what the CDC says. For men, two drinks is okay. But more than two drinks is obsessive. But of course, no drinks is best. Doesn't stop people from drinking, but they want to live a cancer-free life. They want to live a healthy life. They want to live, but yet they're not willing to sacrifice that. Right? Whereas that kind of stuff, I'm willing to sacrifice. I know you mentioned your brother, you mentioned your dad, but you never mentioned your mom. Okay, I'll, I'll tell you a quick story about my mom. So this is one of the things my mom pitched in is I, I was getting ready when I was four years old for karate competition. And I always like shorts, like regular shorts underneath my gi pants in case my gi pants falls down. I got shorts, right? Well, I didn't have shorts that day and I only had underwear. And my mom's like, Jess, you know, if your pants falls down and I was doing kata, you keep with that kata. You don't stop. Don't go pull it. Don't pull up your pants. Leave it there. And I remember thinking, how am I going to do that? Like, frick that. I ain't going to be running around my bibbidees. And my mom goes, you better not. If that falls down, you better keep doing it. You finish that kata before you pull up your pants. And I know that's one of the things like I always think about whenever I do something, it's not how you look. It's what you're doing. What's your performance like? And I think that's helped me in the sense where a lot of times, a lot of athletes, as they start getting older, they want to look good, right? So they start lifting for bodybuilding instead of function. And so I've seen so many athletes become not as good in their sport because all of a sudden they put on bulk because they wanted to look good. I mean, I'm not saying I don't look good and I don't care if I look good or not. I'm more about function. And that comes from my mom because she was like, don't matter what you look like. You better win or you better finish that kata and you better finish it good. Don't let it distract you. If you could only remember one story of your mother and that would be the one that you hold with you, what would it be? I think that one right there is the one. I mean, there's other stories where I think it was super meaningful to me in the sense that because my parents weren't that compliment type, never really said I love you, still to today. I mean, on a card, easy. On text, easy. But verbally, not so easy, right? But I remember I got into the front cover of the racquetball magazine, right? And... It's a pretty huge thing to get on the front cover of any magazine. But at the time when racquetball was at its top, they were talking about the top pros in the world, and I'm the front cover. And my mom goes, you know, 
dad always said that one day Egan's going to be on the front cover. And I was like, wow. You know, I think at that point I realized like that's something my mom said that changed everything that I thought about my parents in the sense that they were actually backing me. I just didn't know it. And there are certain things that they did that showed me that they backed, like let me borrow money to get to a certain tournament or give me some money to do this or that that's pertaining to my goal. And those kind of things I kind of knew. But I think as a kid, you don't realize that that's actually support too. Because I think a lot of times as a kid, you think like they owe it to you. And, you know, like I always tell people, you, no one owes you nothing, right? So I think that is one of the memorable things about my mom because then I started going, oh. Huh. Because I didn't know the whole time that they're backing me in this racquetball. You got to go back to school. You got to get your degree. You got like, that's all I heard. And I'm, I don't care about that. I just want to be the best racquetball player in the world. But that's all I heard from my parents. You know, my dad was pretty quiet, so he didn't really said much. But my mom would always say that. Every chance she got, what about school? What about school? When are you going back to school? I don't know. I don't want to go back to school. I'm not going to go back to school. You know, and I think that's the thing that played with my mom. I mean, there's a lot of memorable things, but I think those two things I mentioned was probably the two. With that, I think it brings us to kind of an important piece where there's points in there where maybe not even so directly, but indirectly you feel loved. Okay, so that love part, I've always felt like they loved me. They just never said it. Yeah. So it's like not a big deal. And I, I hear people tell each other like on the street, hey, I love you, man. I love you, man. And it's always a hard thing for me to tell someone, oh, I love them because that's like a serious word to me. But... I make sure, like, with my kids, I tell them I love them. But I know my older daughters, as they were growing up, I never really said that to them. Now I do. But it's like one of those things where you're trying to break that cycle. You know, like, I want to break that cycle. I don't want, want it to be like that. Because I think in the olden days, that was fine. A lot of us was raised like that. That's cool. Yeah. But this modern-day time, I don't think it's cool anymore. I don't think it helps the kids at all. Yeah. You know, they need to hear you say, I love you. My parents are like that too. My dad then would say, we're not going to ever tell you we love you <laughs> or I'm proud of you. Yeah, yeah. But when you need me, I'm there. Yeah. And they're stuck to that pretty pretty tightly. My sister is the valedictorian and the sports athlete of the year for Punho School. Stanford paid for her master's and her PhD. She's almost a Rhodes Scholar. She's Phi Beta Kappa as a junior. She was recruited from everything under the sun. She's a full professor. I think the only one of her type at USC Children's Hospital. She does research on like handicapped children. You know what I mean? All this kind. My father had never, and he passed away in February, never actually said, Tisha, I'm proud of you. It was a running joke around our family because it was like kind of painful, but we kind of joke around it. You know what I mean? Like we kind of... And I remember he was really on a downturn. And I told him, I said, Dad, you, found, you need to tell her, kind of saying like you need to tell me too, but, like more, <laughs> but it's really like you need to tell her that you're proud of her. Yeah. He goes, I already did. I did at the party or what? I go, you didn't. He goes, I did. <laughs> I go, I videoed it. You want me to show you that right now? It's on my phone. Yeah. He goes, oh, yours. So we got into this whole thing and he goes, I guess there, there's no harm in it. And it's thinking, you know, what happened to you that is so painful that you cannot tell your daughter yeah. or any of us or so on that I'm proud of you when every measurement of any sort, she's at the top, yeah. right? God, it's like, whoa. So I made him. Find, <laughs> I made him do it. And he ended up doing it. 
And it completely, to me, changed a lot. Not just in her, but she might say, oh, I already always knew that and so on. But in him, it was so hard. Yeah. And the only reason I think that he did is he's almost, he's going to die. Yeah. (laughs) You you know what I'm saying? Yeah, totally. So, So what you're saying makes a lot of sense. It does create a lot of drive. Yeah. It creates a lot of drive that if you focus it in a certain direction, you can accomplish a lot. Yeah. But there's not really the substitute for that, right? Yeah. When you say, when yeah, you and I think that you know, in this day and age, it's not a driving force anymore. The way we're, you know, the new generations yeah. are raised now, it's not a thing. But you know, I feel like everybody, no matter how old you are, you always want your parents to be proud of you. Yeah, you just want the love from your parents. Yep. What would be the story that would stick out in your mind where you really knew, hey, I think my dad loves me? I think I always felt that. I mean, no matter what, like even after I got spanking, my mom would always be like, you know, your dad loves you. I think there's a certain point, like when I was playing racquetball, I remember thinking to myself one night after I lost a match, I was sitting down and I was by myself in my hotel room and I was thinking to myself that in order for my dad to have done all of these things for me, and no matter if I win or lose, he's still the same to me. It doesn't matter. I was like, he must love me, mm-hmm. even if he never says it. You know, and after my mom told me that about me being on the front cover of the magazine, I was like, yeah, he must believe in me. But he just doesn't say it. But it's funny because my mom never says it either. Or she goes, you're such a good kid. You're doing so good. But then I do something wrong the next day. You're such a dumbass or whatever it is, right? And she'd call me whatever names and I'd be like, huh, I don't know which one it is. You know, like my running joke is like my grandfather, she used that word Baca, right? For stupid, right? So I thought my nickname was Baca when I was young because that's all I was. Hey, Baca, you Baca. Right? <laughs> but in this day and age, that would wreck a kid if you call them stupid all the time. They tell you, you call your kid stupid all the time, they're going to be stupid, mm. right? And yeah, maybe I am stupid, but I didn't believe I was stupid. You know, no matter how many times they called me that. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think, I don't know. I decided to at a certain point that that's got to stop. You know, I, I'm not passing it down to more generations because that's how it is. I, I could see how my grandparents were to my dad and my mom's side. And now they're doing that to me. Yeah. It's not going to happen anymore. Yeah. yeah, I give you credit for that. I saw it in myself too when I was watching my oldest son yell at my daughter i go that sounds like my dad (laughs) and my other son goes no that sounds like you and i went holy crap (laughs) he's right yeah yeah you know what i mean i was like oh my god he's right (laughs) i know that was one big point where i was like oh i gotta i gotta do something about this i gotta do something about this this is not right yeah well we went full (laughs) circle on all of it was there anything that we missed that you wanted to mention no, I don't think so. I mean, whatever you wanted to cover, I hope we got it. I just wanted to know more about you. So, <laughs> yeah. So I've known you a long time. Yeah. I just wanted to acknowledge you and give you recognition for, you know, coming and spending this time with me. Yeah. I feel like I know you much more. Yeah. I can see why people look up to you. I can understand more of where your drive comes from and how your family is important. So I just wanted to recognize you for that. Oh, thanks. So thank you for coming on. Oh, yeah. That was fun. If you resonate with Greater Good Radio, please join our community at www.greatergoodradio.com 
where you can get access to exclusive content and offerings. Hope to see you soon.